Good evening. Baruch Hashem, this lecture will be Lerefua Shlema Ovaliza Malka Batlea, Lerefuat Chaim Eitan Ben Helena, and Lavdi Leilui Nishmat Avram Ben Rachel Tarazi, and Leilui Nishmat Avram Ben Zion, Avram Ben Zion Ben Feiga. Also, Rafuat, Meir Ben Frida, Mazor Bat Shoshana, Yonatan Chaim Ben Ina, Yonatan Tzach Meir Ben Yael Shosh. Also for Alexander Shimon Brink Ben Avraham for Atzlacha. Top. Those are the names for today. Baruch Hashem, one announcement on Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, I will have a, a lecture in Brooklyn, 1471. East 63rd Street. It's in Mill Basin in Brooklyn. They're going to serve some food there. Going to be interesting. Something different than the usual. Baruch Hashem, everyone is happy. There's a lot of uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of Moroccan Jews living in Israel. Maybe it's the biggest Faradi community in the world is the Moroccans. And they're very happy. Israel made an official peace with Morocco. The relationship was always good. But you know, Morocco was afraid of the rest of the Arab countries. Because if you go and make peace with Israel, there could be consequences to it. Maybe they can make some sanctions against you. Maybe all kinds of things like that. Therefore, Morocco never wanted to highlight too much their good relationship with Israel. One thing is known that the only Arab country in the world, or maybe in the history, that was actually generally nice to the Jewish people was Morocco. Every other country, there was always problems, some more, some less. But in Morocco, for whatever reason, I don't know what difference between these Moroccans to the rest. Maybe it's the influence of France that was there, that they speak French, I don't know. I really don't know, but the Moroccan Jews, they speak about uh, Morocco and they miss it. Meaning, they didn't suffer there like other Arab Jews that came from Arab countries. So Baruch Hashem, now they're already planning to make direct flights to go from Israel to Morocco. It's going to be five hours flight. I didn't know it's that far. I thought it's less. That's what they say, five hours, $400, and you're in Morocco. Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of uh, holy rabbis buried in Morocco. There's all kinds of cemeteries with the uh, holy people that live there. There were many, many big uh, holy people in the last thousand years living there. Even the Rambam went through there. He's Rabbi Derif, the Alfasi, from the city of Fas. Baruch Hashem, there's some legacy over there. 
There's some legacy over there. We'll see what's going to be, Bezrat Hashem. You know, before I get into tonight's topic, if I ask you now, what is the hardest topic in the world? But everybody talks about it non-stop from morning to night. Billions of messages, text messages, exchanging phone to phone, arguments. People bully each other, fighting over it. Vaccines, very good, vaccines. That's the topic. 5,000 times a month I get messages about vaccines. Emails, texts, messages non-stop questions about it. Every side is trying to prove their points. After reviewing what both sides have to say, I can tell you right now that this topic is much, much more complicated than any other topic you have to rule. If you are a rabbi, a posek halacha, every question that comes to your table, you check everything and you rule. That's the halacha. That's the law. Sometimes there can be arguments about the law. People may look at things in a different way, from different point of view. One way or the other, it's no problem. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Always in history you have judges that one will decide to send you free and the other one wants to put you life in prison. In the same court, three judges, two against one how this judge saw this and that judge saw the opposite. People are people. Unlikely judges in a, in a religious court that they are much makpid to stick to the rules of the Torah, judges in a secular court, unfortunately, they are more political than honest. First, they're politicians, and then they are judges. As you can always see, that in every court in every country, you have conservative judges and liberal judges. If the majority is conservative, in every conservative topic, they will rule for it. And if it's Democrat, they will always rule for liberal, lefty. That's what it is. What about the truth? What about the evidence? It's not so important. First of all is what our agenda is. So right now, as you can see, Trump was trying to prove that uh, there was a lot of uh, rigged you know, results of the elections in different states. Every court in every one of the states is, is Democrat judges, liberals. Some of them Jews, unfortunately. Liberal Jews, lefty. Right away, everything was overruled. Dismiss, dismiss, dismiss. When he came to the Supreme Court, now you have five judges against four that should have taken his side. They're afraid for their life. Their life will be over. Their children's life, their grandchildren's life. What do you think? It's easy. Their businesses. It's much, much bigger than what the ordinary people think. People think, oh, yeah, Trump is a majority in the Supreme Court. They will make justice. Baloney. They cannot move an inch. What do you think? You have CIA here, you have Russia, you have China, you have billions of other sources behind the scene. I'm sure they already got their threats. It's much more complicated than people think. In the end, sometimes, in some cases, the judges are really 
nothing but puppets. They don't make any decision. They get the order from up there, and that's it. Also, maybe they are also afraid that it's going to be so much riots in this country, and this country will go to a civil war, which will take years. Civil war, will, will, millions of people will die. Maybe they say, you know what? Let these crooked Democrats steal the election better than to fight them and make this country go on fire and riots will be all over and people will shoot each other on the street and there will be millions of dead. And it's going to crush this country to, for, for eternity. And it will be the end of America. That's it. Already as it is, there's about five or six states in America that nobody wants to live there anymore. Like Detroit and some other place. Everybody leaves. Nobody wants to live there. You can buy real estate there for free. Just pay the, the, the debt, the taxes that they owe the state, the state, and they give you the house. They don't want it. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Detroit. There are cities, towns that is empty. Nobody wants to live there. There's vacant places. Some places they build a new construction and it took a few years and that's it. Nobody moved there. It's just stayed there like this with no electric, no, no sewer. They didn't connect everything. Homeless people moved in. This is a large portion of America is already destroyed. You understand? So to make this country suffer more, they're estimating now that between now and the next election, when Democrats will be in power now for the next four years, that the debt of the United States will rise from 20-something trillion to 50 trillion. 50 trillion. That means an average American that will be born will already owe $150,000 to America. As soon as your baby will come to the world, he already has a debt on his name, on his social security, for 150000 Right now it's about 75000 in four years from now, it's going to be $150,000 per person. If you take out all the illegal people that live here, tens of millions of illegal people, and many people that don't even pay taxes, right, because their income is very low, it means that those who pay taxes may owe, as soon as they have a baby, they may owe already the government three, dollars $400,000. It's, it's unheard of. Something like this. It's unheard of. The, the country is such a debt. So the question is not if United States will go bankrupt. United States is bankrupt a long, long time ago already, or even from before Obama. Obama only made it a lot worse. The question is when the people that United States owe them the money will decide to act on it, such as China, Japan, Saudi Arabia. Right now, everyone is afraid of the sheriff. Sheriff is United States. They still have the power. They can still put sanctions against you. They can disconnect you from the SWIFT, from the World Bank, that you won't be able to do wires and can crush you. United States is basically pointing a gun to the people that they owe them money. Don't mess with us. As long as we pay you your interest, which is around 3% a year, as long as we pay you the interest, just be quiet. Don't make too much noise. But one day, they get they get brave enough and they unite all together and they will announce that they don't want the dollar to be the world reserve currency. And that this country will crash to horrible situation. As it is already, the dollar now is in the lowest it's ever been. 
our money has no value anymore. It keeps going lower and lower and lower. Soon it's going to be the value of the Israeli shekel. It went down from four shekel to a dollar to 3.24. 3.24. That's 20% reduction in few months. Do you know what it means when a world currency, when, the, when a national currency goes down in 20% on the value? It means that if one day you want to come out of America and go buy a house somewhere, let's say you want to go and buy the same private home you have in Queens here, that right now worth a million dollars, right here, still worth a million dollars. You want to sell this house, take the million dollars and go buy a house in Israel. The problem is that a house like this in Israel will cost you five million shekel. So when the dollar was four, million, four, four shekel, for 1.1, 1.2 million, you can buy a normal house. Now when the dollar went down so much, you have to pay one and a half million. Wait another three, four months if it continue to crash like this, it's going to cost you two million dollars. Wait another year, it will be three million dollars. Until it would be five million dollars. Dollar for shekel, it will be equal. That's the bad news. The bad news is that when you want to one day make aliyah, your money will be a toilet paper. Just like the Iranian money, or Argentinian money, or Greek money. Those countries went bankrupt will be the same thing. There is also a good side to it. What's the good side to it? That we will become like China. Now all the manufacturing in the world will move to the United States. Why? Because it will be so cheap. Because if, if dollar would be so cheap, everybody from all over the world will come to buy from here. Because their money will be so much better than us, they're going to have a much bigger buying power. So all of a sudden, maybe that's what will save America. That all of a sudden, all the manufacturing in the world, instead of being in China, will move to America. Only Hashem knows how it's going to end. But we know for sure that we have a gun to our head, maybe few guns. And that's where it is. Day by day, we don't know. We really don't know. Going back to vaccines, I'm going to tell you two claims from both sides. That's a very complicated issue. Baruch Hashem, I don't have to rule about it. It's the job of the biggest rabbis in the world to rule about it. I already see that there is contradictions between them. And there's a reason for it, because it's a very complicated issue. Let me read to you two opinions. Opinions that, opinion that is against vaccine. In the 80s, they passed a law in America, in the late 80s, that pharmaceutical companies that develop vaccine to any kind of disease or pandemic, any kind of vaccine, will be immune from any liability. They have no liability whatsoever from the damages that the vaccine will make to people. If it will make people autistic, it's their problem. If it will make people die, it's their problem. If it will make people lose their head, that's their problem. It will make people zombies, it's their problem. Nobody can sue them. You take a vaccine and something happens, you're allergic to it, you can die from it, it can cause you all kinds of horrible problems, which it happens by a small percentage at least. Nobody can sue them. They are shielded by the law of the United States. Now, you want, now you, you want to ask yourself a question. 
if that's the case, the companies have nothing to be afraid of. They don't, obviously they don't care about life. They only care about the big billions. This pharmaceutical company, the last thing they care about who lives and who died. They only care about how much money they can make. It's business. They're not doing it for, for kindness or to save humanity. Actually, the more people are sick, the more happy they are. Just like the mechanics. When a bad car comes on the market, they are very happy. Baruch Hashem, we're going to have parnasa, Right? Dentists. The more candies they invent, the better they ha the more happy they are. Why? More business, more root canals, more this. Right? So, obviously, the way it is, that everyone wants parnasa. People think that if, if, for instance, if a guy is a doctor, he thinks the more people will be sick, the more work I will have, the more money I will make, the more wealthy I get. It's nonsense. The parnasa of the doctor and the parnasa of the dentist and the parnasa of the mechanic, it's not from patients, it's not from cars, it's from what Hashem writes on Rosh Hashanah. How he's going to give them the money, it can be through sick patients. It can be from broken cars, and it can be from five million different other ways. That doesn't have to be for patients. So even doctors should actually pray that everybody will be healthy. To prove God that they have trust in him, that the parnasah does not come from curing people or being happy that they are sick. No. The doctor have to pray, please God, make all our brothers and sisters healthy. I don't want anyone to be sick. What about your parnasah, Mr. Dear Doctor? Parnasah is not coming from the guy that has cancer or from this guy that has kidney problems and this guy that has ulcer. No. Parnasah comes from Hashem. Right now he gives it to me through the patients. There's not going to be patients. I'll find a way to bring it to me from the stock market, from investment, from other things. Just today, one person that don't know anything from his life, anything from his life, all he knows is to learn Torah, but in business, he has no understanding. Someone offered him to buy one million masks for five cents. He bought it. The next day, he sold it for 15 cents. Tripled his money in one day. Today, he told me. I'm not telling you names because he asked me not to publish his name about it to anyone. But just to give you an idea, if Hashem wants someone to have parnasah, how many people are dealing with masks? Millions. Just me alone, I heard more than 100 people ask me if I know anyone wants to buy masks. The market is flooded with sharks that buy and sell masks in the last 10 months. In millions. These guys have no idea. Nothing. Naive. Someone offered him for 5 cents. Out of nowhere, he found a customer for 15 cents a mask. I asked him, people pay so much for a mask? Yeah. Apparently, when Hashem wants, yes. Triple this money in few phone calls. Big money. You do the math. One or two hundred thousand dollars profit he could make over here. So what do you see? Parnassah does not come from what you specialist in. It doesn't. Okay, so remember this. So we have to have faith in Hashem. The Parnassah does not come from this. So the... If this pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company do not have nothing to be afraid of, nothing, what stops them from having shortcuts? Or 
for putting all kinds of things that may save the money, even though it can increase the percentage of people that get permanent damages. There's nothing to be afraid of. They're not afraid of millions of dollars lawsuits. When they develop regular medicine, they check 5,000 times because they don't want lawsuits. And even then, there is all kinds of malpractice, all kinds of problems. Then people sue them. They have to settle. They have to pay tons of money to all kinds of lawsuits. But when it comes to vaccine, they have nothing to be afraid of. You know, in Egmara, we have a rule. What's the rule? When someone sells something, you count on the fact that he has something to be afraid of. I'll give you an example. You have two kinds of milk in a market. You have Halav Israel and you have OUD. Halav Nochri. Milk that was supervised by a rabbi, by a Jew, Mashgiach, from the beginning to the end of the process. From the time they milk the cows until it ended in a container, somebody watched them. Some rabbi, mashgiach, no matter where the cows are, watch to make sure that they did not add to the milk any other kind of milk, meaning camel or pig or anything else that it's not kosher. Then there's the OUD that they count on the fact that these factories sell millions and millions of gallons of milk every month or every year, and there is a government law that you're not allowed to misc the cow milk with any other milk. And if you're going to do that, you may lose your license and your factory will be shut down. Now, some of these big companies, they have, they have uh, billions of dollars of investors in the stock market. They are a public company. One tiny mistake that will go on the news or on a newspaper they're stuck and crash from, let's say, $50 to $5 overnight. That now they are under investigation, that they sold milk that is not cow milk. And right away, everybody will know that their stock is about to crash. Everyone will sell, and they go out of business in a week. So they have so much to, to be afraid of. Why will they take such a huge risk by mixing other milk with the cow milk? They have so much to lose. The amount that they may save is peanuts compared to how much they can lose if they get caught. Not only that, there is another reason. Camel milk or any other animal milk is six times more expensive than cow milk. Cow milk is the most common milk, cow and sheep. That's very cheap. You have billions of cows in the world. Who knows how many? They produce milk a lot, and it's very cheap. To get pig milk or to get camel milk, it's a, supposedly a harder process because these animals are not known mainly for giving milk. That's not their specialty. Therefore, I once saw they sell on the Internet camel milk, and I calculated it was six times more expensive. Maybe on and off, depend where you buy it from, but obviously it's more expensive. Why would they take more expensive milk and, mil and mix it? They have no reason whatsoever. That's why the OU is giving certificate of kosher milk to a lot of this milk, even though it was not supervised from the beginning to the end. Because they count on a certainty, chazaka. Chazaka that these goyim that sell the milk, 
will never dare to mess their name and reputation and their bank account by doing something, not that they're honest, no, that's not the chazaka. Maybe they are big crooks, who knows, we don't know who they are. But even the biggest crook, when he know he can save $10, but he can lose $10 million if he get caught, he will say, well, it's not, it's, it's not worth it, right? So that's called, in the Gemara, it's called mirtat. Mirtat means fear. The merchant is afraid to mess up his reputation and his money. Therefore, we know for sure, 99.99999% until tomorrow, that the milk will always be cow milk, and that's why it's OUD and you can eat it, for those who are not machmir. Here, in the pharmaceutical companies, they have nobody to be afraid of. There's no government, there's no lawsuits, they are shielded, they are protected, nobody can touch them. Therefore, to begin with, logic, common sense say that vaccine could be deadly, it could be a serious threat. That's one good claim from the sides of those who are opposed vaccines. Now let's hear the other side. This is the son of Rav Mordechai Eliyahu Zatzal, was the chief rabbi of Israel. His son is Shmuel Eliyahu. He lives in Tzfat, he's the rabbi in Tzfat. It's also big Tamid Chacham. And uh, this is what he wrote, I think a few days ago he wrote it down. This is what he writes. Many people came to me after I called to use vaccines. And they told me about the risk of taking those vaccines. In general, and also especially about Corona, because it was made in such a rushed process, I heard them seriously. They brought to me a lot of reading material about the risk in vaccines. I read about people that passed after receiving the vaccine. I read about people that became sick after receiving the vaccine. And after all what I checked and read, here I am telling each one of you today to take the vaccines. Those who are hurt from those vaccines are promil compared to the benefits it gives. It's not guaranteed that they really died from the vaccine or became sick from the vaccine. However, on the other hand, most of the people get cured from it. They live thanks to that. The health department of Israel is very responsible. They will not tell people to take something that they think will harm them. Vaccines extended the life of people from 40 to 50 years to close to 80 years in the world, right? In average, thanks to those vaccines, the life of millions of kids were saved. People used to, in the past, 40% of the children die before they reach the age five. Today, less than 1% of the children die until they reach the age of five. So from 5%, it went down to, from 40%, it went down to 1%. Up to age five, 40% on the children in the world, so it's unbelievable. Yeah, the million kids were born this year, 400,000 of them will now make it to age five in a generation or two ago, right? And now, only 
of the babies in the world do not make it to five years old. Meaning they have some kind of problem, one percent. Still a lot, but, but where is 40 percent and where is one percent? This is the words of Rav Shmuel Eliyahu. And also he continues and says, we all owe a huge gratitude to the health departments that saves life. We are not allowed to speak negative about them. We are not allowed to listen to someone that speaks how bad they are and to have all kinds of conspiracies against them. Medicine and vaccines proves themselves. Those who speak bad about them... Uh, I guess some words here are missing. Those who speak bad about them obviously should not. Ah, they did not prove themselves in saving lives. Meaning people that speak about them, it's not exactly people who go and save life. So they have no responsibility for life. That's why it's so easy for them to publish all kinds of things against it. Right? And halacha say that you count on vaccines. You count on medicine. You count on the health department. And you count on the doctor's advice. When it comes to medical. That's really the halacha. The halacha, a woman comes to a rabbi and she say, that's what the doctor said that I have to do. The, 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 if it's a known doctor that he has enough experience and a good reputation, the, the rabbi has to tell her, you must listen to what the doctor tells you to do when it comes to delivery, when it comes to surgeries, when it comes to all kinds of things. Every doctor with his specialty. Right? When you have root canal or a cavity, you're not sure what it is. Who do you go to ask? To your dentist or to your rabbi? Right? If you come to the rabbi and rabbi says, oh, well, let me see, let me look at you. Don't worry, it's nothing. Don't have to do anything. Uh, no, wait, two, three weeks, you're going to have root canal, pay $3,000 and send a thank you to your rabbi that told you that it's nothing. So rabbi... They're experts in Torah, experts in halacha. They can give great advice in general for life based on their experience. They speak to thousands of people. They have great intuition. They have good, smart, common sense, sharp heads usually. Right? So if you know they are known as kosher rabbi, not university liberal rabbis. From them you have to stay away like from a poison of a snake. You cannot be near them. You cannot stand near them. Stay away from these people in any topic. Not just Torah and Ashkafa, everything. Never take advice from them about anything. Because if they give the opposite advice of the Torah, imagine what advice they give you when it comes to your life. So you've got to stay away from these liberal, modern, and whatever you want to call them. You have to stick to those who are known as really Yeshiva Shrabai. Doesn't matter, Sfaradi, Ashkenazi, Hasidish, doesn't matter. But known, known as real Orthodox. Not influenced by modern universities, not influenced by all kinds of nonsense that you hear today, as you know, as we gave many examples in the past of some of them, and speakers that knows how to speak nicely in YouTube obviously are not an authority to rule and to, to be a posekalachot, just because they know how to speak in certain topics. It needs a serious Talmid Chacham with serious experience. For instance, uh, you have sometimes a person that was attached to a rabbi for 20, 30 years. Attached to him. 
see how he rules, see how he answers to people, go with him on trips, attach to him. He learned from him more than he will learn from thousands of books, just by being attached to him. Uh, for instance, the grandson of Ramoshe Feinstein, he was attached to him for who knows how many years, many, many years, since he was a young teenager until a late age when Rav Moshe passed. Thousands of thousands of times he saw how he ruled, how he speaks to people, what his opinions about certain things. There's a school for life. Besides learning from books, this is an extra. You learn, Gadol Shimusha We have a rule. If you are attached to a professional, it's greater than to learn by the books about the profession. I'll give you an example from life. Who would you prefer changing the brakes in your car? Someone who learned in the internet from A to Z for weeks how to change brakes. He learned, he saw videos, whatever you want to call it. He read how to do it, instruction A, B, C, D. Or someone who works in a garage Six months. Amigo from Mexico. Como esta, senor? What's your name? Jose. You change brakes? Yeah, 500 times already. Barely know how to read a word in English. He did not learn how to change brakes in a, in a mechanical school. He learned it from everyday work. He came to the garage, he cleaned the garbage. A week later, he started to change tires. A week later, he started to help him to change the brakes. Six months later, he's an expert about changing brakes, even though he barely speaks two words in English. And then you have a doctor, a very high-Q intelligent guy, who decided to learn from books how to change brakes. Both of them are standing over here. You want this genius that learned how to change brakes from books? Or you want this amigo who came to the garage and worked there for six months. Who would you want to change your brakes? What do you say? Jose, right? With no fear. Why? The answer is because he's an expert. He works every day, he sees what needs to be done. Same thing. When you are attached to a rabbi in a bedding, or, or he writes, or the, the grandchildren of Ravovadia that were attached to him, his sons, they learn from him. They saw how he answered to people again and again and again and again. There are some rabbis who used to write his books for him. He used to give them all the papers. He had many questions. They came back to him. What did you mean here? What should I write here? Here I'm not sure what you meant. Thousands of hours of conversation. If you want to know who is the closest to the Rav Ovadia's opinion, it's either his sons or his grandsons, or the few rabbis who sat with him and read his book, wrote his books, like Rav Shitrit, Rav Naki, a few rabbanim that already published some of his books after he passed. Why? Because they were there 30 years attached to him for hours every day. So nobody knows his opinion more than them about every topic. If you want to know the opinion of Rav Benzion, Abba Shaul Zatzal, in every topic in the Torah, you come to my rabbi. He learned with him 12 years. 12 years every day, was very attached to him, in close rooms. So every opinion of Chacham Ben Zion about every topic, he'll tell you from A to Z. Everything he ever said about it. Why? He was attached to him. What you learn in Orle Zion, it's maybe 30, 40 percent. 
You want to know the whole picture? You need someone that was attached. There's few Rabbanim, Rav Gamlieli, you know, a few other, Rav Amar, that were attached also to Rav Ben-Zion Abashaw. Maybe five or six world-known students that was mamash attached to him. Rav Gidon ben Moshe is one of the most important Dayanim in the world today, in the Beddin of Yerushalayim. He was also a student. So those are the ones who continue his way. Same thing by every Chacham. Every Chacham, every few major Talmidim that follow his way. Throughout the generation. Throughout the generation. Everyone is known. It's called Talmid Muvahak. So what do we see over here? This is my answer to the Chisunim. I don't know what to say. Both sides are very convincing. The one side that claimed that the insurance company, the vaccine company have nothing to be afraid of, and who knows how many things they do, and who knows how many things will happen, we don't know. The other opinion of Rav Eliyahu, as you just read, is very convincing to take the vaccine. I say, my personal opinion, personal opinion, is to wait at least a few months and see what happened to those who rushed to take it. If you see after six months, you don't hear anything. Nobody claimed he died, nobody became autistic, nobody has rashes, nobody has kidney problems as results of this vaccine. The more time passes, the more safe it looks that it is, right? You don't want to be the first one. You don't want to be a... a Guinea pig, huh? They may not write the statistic, but today you don't need to write statistics. People go on social media and begin to bark for every little thing. You're going to have millions of people talking about it, making videos. I took the Pfizer vaccine. Look what happened to me. Boom. I did the, you're going to start hearing it everywhere. That's going to be the end of them. Huh? You don't know if it's real, but if you see millions, some of them has to be real. It can be they have one million videos against it and all of them are live. Very unlikely. You, you're right. You live in a world that everything could be a lie and it's very convincing. I always tell people, you believe every conspiracy you, say, you see on YouTube. You know, today, it's interesting how one of the biggest Yetzirah of speakers is to speak about conspiracies in their lecture. Even some that used to speak Torah and be good and strict, all of a sudden, you come to their lecture today, you cannot believe it. Basically, the entire lecture is YouTube conspiracies. The Illuminati and 5G, and they take your identity, and they want to kill millions of you, and 5G will kill you. Oh my gosh, what a stupid lecture. From A to Z, 100% waste of time in Bitul Torah. If you see that you go into lectures, that the speakers, whoever they are, begin to speak about YouTube conspiracy, it's only going to mess your head more than what the media already did. It's not beneficial. It's only going to confuse you more. It won't lead you anywhere. You're going to get confused. Go and learn Torah. Go and learn Torah. You want, you want to hear current events? You want to know how to handle the situations in the world? Yes, that's a part of our life. But don't go based on conspiracies. Conspiracies, there's endless amount of them. Endless amount of them. You cannot believe how much garbage videos people send me. I watch two seconds, 
first sentence, I already know where it's going, immediately I shut it off. My time is precious. I don't want to waste any time on these conspiracies. Sometimes I don't even open it. I just see from the title, what is it about? Immediately I delete it. Why? Pure waste of time. That's why if you go to a lecture, whatever it is, and they begin to talk about these governments, new world order, Bill Gates wants to kill the whole world, and that's what it is, they put in a vaccine, they're going to make it mandatory. You life is miserable as it is. 99% of life is misery. 1% of life is nice, good, pleasure and lights. You want to take the 1% and turn it into one misery also? Also, be my guest, it's your life. How many happy moments we have in life? How many? Most of the life is stress, is parnasa, issue, problems, customers, traffic, diseases, stress, panic attacks, high blood pressure, high sugar, problem with the children, drug pandemic, drug addictions, problems with the neighbors, problems with the partner, problems with the government, problems with your stupid bank, problems with, the, with corona now everywhere you go, with the mask, you cannot even sit in a normal bagel in a restaurant anymore, as of today again, no more sitting in restaurants. So life as it is, is full of misery. How many happy moments a person has in life compared to the miserable moments? There's nothing to even compare. Maybe 1%. The day you marry one of your children. Wow, so you had a few happy days. In general, but how much stress before and how much stress after and raising children and see and watch them and sometimes they sick. You have to run to doctors and surgeries and horrible stress and all kinds of other stress, and people who don't work already for 10 months. On top of all of that, you want to now mess up your head with all these scary theories and balonies that 99.9% .9 of them are pure garbage? Clean it from your head. Better really not to listen to the news. If you really cannot go out there without the news, find a kosher place. You know, I once advertised there's a kosher news. KosherNews.org, right? That's the, what's the, yes. KosherNews.org, they clean all the garbage. They put some helpful article there. If you want to read a little bit about the news, the rest you hear in my current events. Once a week, that's for the whole week. You don't need more than that, that's it. So let's move on. But really, really, if you see that lectures from Torah become 100% conspiracies, and explaining to you of the government, they want to do this to you, and they want to do that to you, immediately run away from all this nonsense. That's not Torah. That's not, that's not Torah. That's not sure Torah, and that's not considered as learning Torah. It's considered of bitul Torah. Bitul Torah, it's a sin. Limut Torah, it's mitzvah. Bitul Torah, it's a sin. When you have a shiur here, and you go outside on your phone to watch a basketball game, while the shiur is here, that's called bitul Torah. Hashem will be very upset with a person like this. You have my Torah, you leave it on the side to go watch a stupid game. What is it going to give you in life? Same thing if you sit inside the shiur and it's all nonsense theories and conspiracy theories and all this nonsense. That's also bitul Torah. 
You want to learn halachot? Go to someone who teach halachot. You want to learn parashat ha-shavua? Learn. You want to learn dafiyomi? Gemara? Learn. You want to learn musar, like most of these lectures in Ashkafa? Learn. You want to learn about the world as long as it's connected to Torah? Fine, no problem. But not based on conspiracy. Based on reality. Reality, what we see right now. We speak about Iran. We see what's happening. We speak about other things. We see what's happening. But now, ah, this... Government, this, Bill Gates wants to kill, together. Someone sent me a video a few days ago. I sent it to my doctor. It was against vaccines. That Bill Gates and Fauci was in the same class, in the same university, and the father of it said to me, Belloni, Bill Gates was in this college, Fauci was in a totally different college. People actually sit for hours and make fake videos. Unbelievable. What do they have in their mind? And make money for it. Top. Ay, 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 Hashem Yatzilenu from this fake world, such a fake world. It's crazy. Top. Baruch Hashem, we cover all of that. And let's talk a little bit about some things that can help our life. As we are in this parashiot, Yaakov and Esav, Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov is sitting in the land of Canaan, the land of his fathers. It's very interesting, the Rav Yonatan Eifschitz, he was a very big rabbi 200 years ago. Genius, from a very young age they knew he's going to be a very genius Chacham. He was an Ashkenazi rabbi. He was very, very sharp in debates, in arguments, debates, very sharp. Sharp brain, sharp mouth. So, if you remember one time I told you a story about him that they built a church across the street from his yeshiva and they put this big cross over there and, and uh, he had a chevruta over there that, that was redhead with hot blood and this chevruta saw this church in front of his eyes every day, decided to go in the middle of the night and cut this wood cross and the Christian already waited for that day. <laughs> That's the only reason they made the church right by the yeshiva, right? So they called him, they put a sack on his head, they took him to the basement, put him over there in the basement. That's where they used to torture the people who went against the church. Today the churches are very polite. They have sweet talking. If you know a little bit of their history, no one in the history was crueler than them. No one. The Nazis learned everything from them. 500 years ago in a Spanish-Portuguese Inquisition, the tortures that they tortured people who did not want to obey the rules of the church, obviously 99% of them were Jews, is beyond words what they used to do to people. Kinds of tortures today you can find only by the Nazis and in Iran. That's what they do to people in Iran if they catch someone. Or maybe in China, I don't know. But... It was beyond words. Today, they changed their style. No more physical torture, but missionary work. They have unlimited amount of money. They spill billions of dollars in countries where they can get away stupid democracies, such as America, Europe, Israel, not by Arab countries, because as soon as they go to an Arab country, the Muslim will slaughter them if they come to spread their nonsense over there. You know, with the Muslims, you don't play with their fate. Only in liberal Israel, the court helps them. Let them spread their missionary work. So that's what they used to do. So they're still doing it everywhere you go. 
So it's very interesting. So his Chevruta got caught, and then Rav Yonatan Ayfshit sold all his money, I mean, took all his money from the safe, even the money of his wife, all the gifts she got in the wedding, whatever, and went and paid them, paid the guard there to release him. And, uh, and then he knew when his wife would find out, it would be a disaster. So he just decided to go for two weeks, go on a trip for two weeks. By the time his wife will find out, until she will relax, he will be back. He was afraid from her reaction. When he came back two weeks later, he saw that she has a huge barrel and she's dancing. Where have you been, Yonatan? Where have you been? She's dancing. She's not angry. What happened? You okay? Yes, what do you think? I don't know. You, you took all our jewelry and all our money and you, and you went across the street to the guard in a church and bribed him to release your chevruta. Don't you think I know? No. And you're not upset? Well, I was very upset. I was ready to, to, to choke you. But Baruch Hashem, it worked out. Hashem loves you. Why? The Christian church found out who's the traitor. <laughs> that is the guard over there. And he was working there for 30 years and stealing from people watches and jewelry and bracelets over the years. He had a barrel full of good, beautiful, valuable jewelry and, and money and silver coins and gold coins. So he has no children and they're about to execute him. So he, say, he came, knock on the door and he said, listen, you the wife of the rabbi? The rabbi is here? No. You his wife? Yes. This is a gift for your husband. They're going to kill me over there and I have nobody to give it. And I saw what he was willing to do for his friend. He gave me all this money for his friend. No one in the world deserves to get such a treasure but him. So he got a thousand times more than what he paid. So she was dancing and he fell on the floor and started to cry. So he said, oh my gosh, it's not good. She said, why? What's wrong with you? Everything with you is the opposite. Supposed to be dancing now. He said, no, it's not good. Hashem paid us in this world. That means he, did not, he was not satisfied with my mitzvah. And I know why. Because the yeshiva gave time for everyone to go to collect money to participate in the mitzvah of redeeming a prisoner from the hand of the goyim, which is a big mitzvah, and I got greedy. I took all our money and I went to do the mitzvah on my own. I did not wait for them to bring money. So that's why Hashem paid me in this world. Why? Because this mitzvah, it's endless reward in the afterlife. Pidyon Shvuim. This is the only mitzvah you can sell besides this, that you can sell the Sefer Torah and with the money go and release a prisoner that is captured by the goyim in prison. So, mitzvah Pidyon Shvuim. So, here you go, this is a way of a Talmid Chacham looking at the world. This was Rav Yonatan Ayvshit, so listen to this. So he was, he was known as one of the biggest rabbis in Europe, and uh, he, he, he actually had debates with Jews and non-Jews. Everyone who came to him obviously got crushed. Nobody could ever argue with him. So you had the wicked Jews, the beginning of the Ascala movement was in his time. Jews who started to go to universities. And the Christians, they go in. So he was a Rosh Yeshiva and a great speaker in a city of, who knows, Prague. There are many rabbis in Prague. There's beautiful synagogues in Prague. 
So he was in the city of Prague. When he was old, older, he was the head of all the communities. Altona, Hamburg, Wenzbeck, in Germany. One time, as he's sitting in the city of Hamburg, in Germany, a person showed up in his house. Who was he? A secular Jew. Yehudi Mumar. What we call today an atheist. Rabbi, I'm an atheist. Okay? And he was a censor for the Goim on books that are written in Hebrew, in Lashon HaKodesh. The Goim, they knew he hate religion. He became secular. But he has knowledge in Lashon HaKodesh from the time he was in Yeshiva when he was a kid. Is what we call off the derech. So the Goim hired him to examine the Jewish books, and if they need to censor it, what do you call it? Censura? How do you say it in English? Censor, right? Okay, it's an English word. So, to censor the books, if they write against JC, if they write against the church, if they write against anything like this, right away let us know. Top. So, <laughs> this guy is working as a censor. Top. So he came to speak to Rav Yonatan Eifschitz, and Rav Yonatan Eifschitz turned his face from his face. He was here, and Rav Yonatan Eifschitz turned his face and was answering him. But he didn't look at him. But this guy thought he's sharp. You know, he came to the sharpest rabbi in Europe. He thinks he also is sharp. So he said to him, he said to him, why the rabbi is not looking in my face? We learn from the Torah. Oh, now, he, now he's not an atheist. Now he has a proof from the Torah that the rabbi should look at his face. We learn in the Torah that Yaakov, the tzaddik, when he spoke to Esav, he looked at him. And he said to him, Ki al ken ra'iti panecha. I saw your face, Yaakov said to him. Good, good proof or no? Ha'esav was Rasha, Yaakov Tzadik. Why he looks at his face? Rav Yonatan told him, you should have completed the entire verse, not read only half of it. You know what's the rest of the verse? <laughs> he said to him, Ki alken ra'iti et panecha kirot pnei elokim. Today I saw your face like seeing the face of God. Which means I did not look at your face. Why? Because it's written in the Torah, nobody can look at God and stay alive. Nobody can see him. Nobody can see me. I don't have an image. I don't. That's what Yaakov said to Esav. I see your face today like seeing the face of God. Esav is thinking, ooh, he's comparing me to God. <laughs> Yaakov already knew he's a murderer coming to him with 400 uh, mercenaries to murder him. Yaakov sent angels already to check. So that means Yaakov already knows who he has business with. It's nothing uh, new. 
So how all of a sudden he's going to say, looking at your face is looking at the face of God. Are you allowed to kiss up to wicked people? It's a very big sin. To come to a wicked person and tell him, oh, you're such a tzaddik. God loves you. That's a very big sin. Very big and very common sin. Some speakers make this mistake. Maybe they have good intention. They want to find favor in the eyes of the secular people or the eyes of the wicked people. Yes. I'm sure they have something good behind it. Maybe they can handle the criticism, the pressure. Maybe they are not fit to tell people the truth in their face. Not everyone can do it. So let's give them the benefits of the doubt that the reason that they kiss up to these wicked people is because they mean well. But one way or the other, it's a sin. doesn't matter what you mean. It's still a sin from the Torah to do such thing. So... רב יונתן אייפשיץ טולדים וכבר העידה התורה כי לא איראני האדם וחי אקסודוס 33 It's written over there clearly and over there it shows clearly that a person can never look at the face of God and that's what יעקב actually say to עשיו I can't look at your face why? because looking at the face of a wicked person makes a serious damage, spiritual damage to the person that looks. Right? So it's very interesting because there are people today in the world that are really makpid on it. Makpid, they take, they put their head down that they don't have to look at people when people come. Or they look down with their eyes. Or they don't look direct. They look in general, like blurry, around. They don't focus. They don't zoom. Huh? Handshake, it's even worse, because handshake creates friendship. Hey, hand is 14. There are 14 parts on the fingers. You, Dalet, Yad, right, Yad. You have over here three, 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 and two, right? 12 plus two, 14. And the other person is also 14. When one hand goes into another and becomes a bond, a, a, a bind, right? So... 14 and 14 is 28. What's 28? Koach, strength. They exchange strengths between them. You understand? That's why some uh, Hasidim, if you see, when you give them handshake, they give you only the nails. Like this. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Doesn't matter. You have kippah, you may have beard, you may have black hats. Doesn't matter. Just give you like this. Some put gloves. Right? Or the sleeves. They put the sleeve like this. Or the tzitzit. The truth is that it's very unrealistic to start not shaking people's head. The damage is more than the benefit. First of all, you offend people. And that's a sin from the Torah, to insult people. Second, if people see that to some people you shake hands and to others you don't, and you are an important rabbi, that's like murdering them. Why? Because then everybody begins with the gossip, you see? He did not want to write the hand of the, this guy. He shook the hand of this guy, that means he's a tzaddik. He didn't want to shake his hand. Don't talk to him, he's a rashad, he's a, this guy, a, I'm to I told you he's a murderer. I knew it. That's how people are. I'll never forget, many, many years ago, I went to a place and there was Erev Rosh Hashanah. Erev Rosh Hashanah. 
דרביי עובדר, פיקנקולי מרביי, So people sit down, after let's say 13, 14 people sit down, he used to make selection. You, you, what are you sitting? You get up, stand over here. You, you, get up, stand over, stand over. You, you, Moshe, come here, you sit down. You get up, you sit down. That second when I saw it, I couldn't look at his face anymore. Could not learn from a Torah from him and I was zero knowledgeable. It was my first year. Just couldn't look at him anymore after that. I said, that's not a chacham, that's not a ra, that's someone who was able to murder people in front of the whole public, b'shita, every year he does the same thing. Probably until today. That's not a person you want to be affiliated with. Right? Okay, you want a tzaddikim uh, to see it? Plan it ahead of time. Tell people when I'm going to say for 10 people to, to see it, quickly see it. Before other people would see it. You can tell them quietly. Like this, nobody get offended. No problem. By the way, what do you think would be better? Not, not to say anything, and even though some of the people who said they are not the biggest tzaddikim, or to make the not such great tzaddikim get up, make tzaddikim sit inside, where do you think Hashem will accept your prayers more? What do you think? What do you think? I give you a proof for it. The biggest chacham in the world was Rav Ben-Zion Biggest Kabbalist also in the world. And the unbelievable Baal Midot. And unbelievable full of suffering. His wife have like 13 miscarriages. Every time she's pregnant, boom, lose the baby. Pregnant few months, boom, lose the baby. One year after the other. Finally one boy they had. After all these years. Then in a, in a funeral of Rav Yaakov Mutsafi, he became paralyzed. He was laying like this on his grave. Rav Yaakov Mutsafi was niftar. That day he became paralyzed, went on a wheelchair. Such suffering he had, plus he never left the Torah. It was all his life the Torah. And one time, my cousin told me, he told me I asked him to be sandak in the breed of my son. He told me, did you let your father uh, sit? I said, no, but I want you. I want the boy to have the biggest sandak in the world. I don't want my father, with all due respect, is an ordinary person. Barely, Shomer Shabbat, keep mitzvot, but it's not uh, what, I'm, what I'm hoping my son to be. Because sandak is passing from him, from his, from his spirituality into the baby. So we choose someone that is big in Torah, in good midot, So he said to him, no, I cannot be Sandak until your father will suggest it on his own. But if he doesn't, and don't hint to him anything, he must be the Sandak. Why? Because you think that he will help your baby more letting me sit there when your father is standing there in front of the audience 
knowing you did not let your father be sandak, murdering him to help your baby, that's not the way of the Torah. I'm sorry. So I will pray, Bezrat Hashem, that this baby will be big, chacham, and tzaddik, just like he was supposed to be if I was the sandak, if that's what you worry about. You understand? So here is a way of a gadol b'torah that he pays attention to every little detail. Every little detail. They pay attention. Why? Maybe someone will be hurt. Someone will be offended. Unbelievable. They, they, they talk about one of the big tzaddikim, one of the Ashkenazim in Europe, when he went aliyah to Israel, he walked one time on the street, and without realizing, his head was busy with Torah, his, his foot went into a bucket full of lime. You know, in a construction site, they have this white, uh, what do you call it? Chalk. So it's all the way to his knee. His entire pants is inside. That's it, his pants is finished. And he, doesn't, he does not take his leg out. Someone, what are you doing, Rabbi? Take it out. I can't go. Why? I have to wait until the person that owns it will come. Why? I made him a damage. So there's some kind of a damage here now. With my legs went in, it stuck to my pants. Probably a few shekel. How much? I don't know how much it costs. It's not that expensive. Maybe three, four, five shekel. One dollar. Whatever it is. Can go. Stealing. He waited there for hours. For hours he waited. There was one old man in Israel. He got on a bus. And the bus driver by mistake gave him few shekel extra change. When he got off the bus, he checked his money to take another bus now. And he saw a few more shekel more. He gave me more money. I didn't have this money. By mistake. He sat there in a bus stop for hours until the bus will finish his entire tour and now comes on the other side. And he waited every, every bus who came to see if it's the same driver. Until the driver came back, he said, excuse me, I'm waiting for you for six hours here. You gave me two shekel extra. This is the power of the Torah. This you don't find anywhere in the world just by people that are Bnei Torah. They understand the value of honesty and integrity and clean hands. Clean hands. I told you once the story that in Ponovich Yeshiva, they took some Israeli jet pilots. After the Six-Day War, everybody was a mini-god. They looked at them in Israel. Oh, he's, he's a F-15 pilot, he's a Phantom pilot, peace pilots, Israeli Air Force. So they took them to Ponovich to see Rav Shach and to see the yeshiva, thousands of people learning Mara. They, brought, they took them into the room of Rav Shach to give them like a 20-minute speech. On the way out, they walked around and they saw on a bulletin board a $100 bill with a nail stuck to it. And there is a message next to it. Anyone who lost it, please take the pilots were shocked. So, wow, what's this? Somebody apparently lost it. And how long it's here? Few good years. The person will take them on a tour. <laughs> it's already four years here. 
And nobody, there's thousands of people here, walking, coming in, out all day. Nobody ever took it for all these years? Nobody took it. It doesn't belong to them. Still waiting for the person who lost it. For years, $100 used to be a lot of money. Not anymore. But there used to be time, in the time of Rav Shach, that $100 was a lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> this doesn't have any value anymore. But back then, it used to be a lot of money. Nobody touched it. And I don't have to tell you that a lot of these Bachurei Shiva are penniless. They sit without a penny. And they see this $100 every day on the board, every day, passing by, passing. No, now one of them looked around and took it. And in those days, there were no cameras. So you can suspect that they were afraid. There was no cameras there or, you know, in a building. We're talking 30, 40 years ago. Something like that. Or more. This is the way the parasha begins. Before that, you know that once Yaakov met Esav, now Esav said to Yaakov, let's walk together. Me and, me and my people, and you and your children. Who are these children? So they never come to say, Esav never saw Yaakov's family before. You know? So... If there was Zoom back then, maybe Esav would watch the wedding, <laughs> you know. But there was no Zoom, and they didn't, uh, they were not exactly in touch. Yaakov got married, they have children already, now they meet after so many years. And listen to this. Esav come and say, I see that your children are very nice and polite. No, but they are a little bit square-headed, meaning old-fashioned. They're not, they're not up to date with society. No, they're not from my kind of university. What? So, I don't see that they know anything about the world. Look at them, they're so shy like this, standing... So maybe my children should become their friends after all their cousins and complete to them what they miss from the world. After all, you were stuck in the house of, of your father-in-law for so many years. What, what did they see? They didn't see the world like, like we did. Let them be friends. Cousins. How many times people told me, Rabbi, my cousin has a birthday. Party. My cousin has a wedding. My this. So I say, is it a kosher of a party or no? Usually the answer is no. So why are you asking? What's the question? You're not allowed to go to a non-kosher party. Women are not modest, mixed wedding, not kosher music, sometimes even not kosher food. So what's the question? Rabbi, family! Strange. What's more important, Hashem or family? You didn't make up your mind all these years? You grew such a nice beard and you still have dilemma? If your cousin that you see him twice a year comes before Hashem or Hashem comes before your cousin? What's the question? Most religious people still asking this question after 20 years of being religious. They still have this emotional crisis. 
And they give all the excuses in the world. But they came to our wedding because your wedding was kosher. They obviously could come to you, but you cannot go to theirs. Uh, they are nice people. Someone that betrayed God and rebelled against his orders and constitution and does not fulfill a minute in his life, his purpose in life. And he's nice to people, but he's horrible to his own creator. Someone like this, can we call him a nice person? That's a very good question to ask yourself. Someone is nice to the whole neighborhood. Help the lady with her, with her shopping, help the neighbor to clean his car, washing the stairs, helping with the elevator, helping with gardening. It's such a, everybody's crazy about him in the neighborhood. Except when his father comes, he abuses him, throws things at his father, curses him, everything his father asks, he does the opposite. Embarrass his father nonstop. No gratitude to his father whatsoever. Nothing. Now we have to decide. Someone like, he, like this is a noble human being or is a horrible human being? You know those surveys? Green or red? Green, wonderful human being. Red, horrible human being. Which one of the two you would answer in a survey? Anybody thinks he's a wonderful human being? He's nice to dozens of neighbors. But when it comes to his own father and mother, oh my gosh, how he speaks to them. Embarrass them, curses them, call them names, throw things at them. Everything they ask, he does the opposite on purpose. Ignore them like they dust in the wind. Now we have to decide. Dozens of neighbors coming and screaming his name. Moshe, Moshe, Moshe. And Hashem say, Moshe, Moshe, horrible Moshe. My son rebel against me, ungrateful to me, embarrass me, humiliate my Torah. Who should we follow? Hashem or the dozens of neighbors? who are speaking from personal interest. Is he a wonderful human being? Any person here wants to claim that he's a wonderful person? Baruch Hashem, you're all smart. Very good. Nobody here is stupid. Baruch Hashem. Because someone that will claim that somebody like this is a wonderful human being is probably as bad as him. That's really the truth. Because every normal person, Jew, non-Jew, doesn't matter, understands. Someone who spits in his own father and ignore him and ungrateful to him. And no matter how much the father tries to help him, he more goes against him. Someone like this, you don't need to check about him ever again. You already know he's a despicable human being. That's it. The rest is not relevant, what he does to others. He cannot add or cannot decrease from his status. So... That's the same thing here. When it comes to following the halacha, following the Torah, and then there is all kinds of tests in life. Wedding of the cousin, birthday party, this, that, Hanukkah bayit. Is this a kosher place to be? Family! They're full of clowns there, drinking, speaking dirty language, horrible jokes, laughing like crazy, ha 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 with the wine and the whiskey and the vodka. Is this where Hashem wants me to be? 
Of course not. So I don't go. But the cousin will be upset. I'm sorry. I'll send him a gift. Hanukkah come, I'll send him a nice present with an apology letter. Forgive me. I love you very much, but I love Hashem a little more than I love you. Right? And if I don't come to you, I may not lose my olam haba. But if I don't, I may. You understand? Or the other way around. So this is reality. You have to make the brain win the heart. Not the heart wins against the, and against the head. If the heart controls the head, I don't want to tell you where you're going to end. Because 99% of the time, the heart will take you to the negative side. To the negative side. Usually, that's how it is. So, Esav, he shows empathy. Let's, let's finally, let's catch up all the years we were not together. Let's introduce our children together. Maybe we'll make shiduchim. We're family, no? So, I see that they're a little bit pale also. They're not going to the gym. What kind of... Of course, I make it a little bit juicy. You get the idea here. These two opposite ideologies collides. Greek and Jews. Boom! Yaakov and Esav. That's what Hanukkah is all about. Esav is very nice for a change. He forgot about his plan to murder Yaakov. So he's showing now, you know, beautiful behaving. That's more dangerous. More dangerous than I hate you, I want to kill you, but this time I won't kill you, but get out of my face. Oh, brother, mwah, mwah, I love you, I missed you. Wow, what wonderful children. Let our children play basketball together. Let's take them to Disneyland together. Let's make them a day, a fun day together in our pool in the backyard. That's it, Rabotai. What do you think the Torah brings you these stories for? This is the school for life. So, so, it says, I'm not, God forbid, Esav say, I'm not, God forbid, suggesting that your children will stop learning Torah. Brother, I know how much you love to learn Torah. You, you, Ishtam, Yoshevo Alim. You didn't leave the Torah. <laughs> That's all I remember from you. All your life, learning, learning, learning. And I see your children came just like you. So I'm not, God forbid, in suggesting that the, the sport or what my children will do with them will come in the time of their learning. We're talking in between, in Benazmanim, in recess. Recess. Maybe there's a corona break. No? <laughs> if you're afraid, Yaakov, that my kids will speak things next to your children that they're not supposed to hear, no problem. You can be there and watch. You can be there and watch. And you censor their words. Everything will be strictly supervised as you wish, brother. Bro. Reminds me... Uh, maybe 15 years ago, give or take, 15 years ago, one Satmer Hasid from Williamsburg calls me up. 
שלום רביי, my name is יואילי, good. My name is יואילי. Why יואילי? They love the rabbi so much, רב יואל מסטמר was a very holy man. So almost all the people named their children, at least one child, after him. So they have thousands of Yoel. Yoel means Yoel. Yoel from Satmir, or Joel in English, right? Same thing in Chabad. You have Menachem Mendel. You say Menachem Mendel, half of the children say Vus. You go to Breslev, you say Nachman, half of the children say Vus. You say Nathan, the other half. In Satmir, say Yoelina. By the Sfaradim, you also have a lot of Ovadia, you have a lot of, but it ranges on different names, because there's no Hasidiot, like group only for this rabbi, or group only for this rabbi, so it's a little bit different. So, so he calls me up, he says, listen, I take care of children that are going off the derech, teenagers, Rachmana Letzilan, some of them don't even keep Shabbos anymore. You will never believe, if you see them, they look strictly orthodox. But I already lost the Ramuna completely. I would like to bring you, because I saw that some of the people that listens to you online, after they went off the derech, they came back. So I have this idea to invite you to the synagogue in Williamsburg to give them a lecture. It's going to be about all together expect to have how many? 200 people. 200. Is it that many? I said, yes, some of them are really off. Some of them are starting to show bad signs. Believe me, it will not be easy to arrange such an event. It will, took, it will take me weeks. Already to get approval from the rebels, it was a nightmare until they agree. Why? You have to understand. You are the exact opposite of what a Satmer expects to see in his shul. You are Israeli. It's against the law. Zionist. Complete Russia. Zion, they already decided. I'm a Tzioini. Tzioini. Baal Tshuva. Oy, Rachmana Letzilan. Four, don't have a long beard. Five, don't wear a streimel. And six, do not speak Yiddish. Mean everything with the spite. It's in you. Of course, he said it in a much more polite way, with hints. But Baruch Hashem, I understand hints. So he said, believe me, it wasn't easy to approve it. Only after they were convinced that it's a very high chance that those Bachurim will come back to religion, they say, you know what, if we have to cooperate with the devil, let it be. <laughs> let it be. So, I went there. How I remember this now. They brought 20 rebels to supervise me from all directions. One here, one there, one there. <laughs> to make sure that once I prove to those Hasidim that the Torah is Mina Shamaim, that accidentally I will not say something about the state of Israel or the Israeli army or the Israeli government. So they were very, like, alert, waiting, you know. Baruch Hashem, I knew my limits. They don't even know how my ideology is very, very close to theirs. I also despise this Rishayim and all. 
and everything, which you saw many times over the years. Anyway, so there was a wonderful night there, and by the end of the lecture, seven boys already came to this uh, person who organized the lecture and told him we are shocked, we didn't know these things, and Baruch Hashem, we are back to keep Shabbos. So there's 200, we don't know what happened with the rest, not everybody ran to declare anything. But already before I left, he told me, seven boys already told me, we got every answer we needed. And now they now follow the religion out of knowledge, not out of blind faith. Until now for them it was blind faith. Now it became knowledge. There's a big difference in your motivation when you know that you're not investing your money in some stock that will crash tomorrow. Then you know there's no chance for it to crash, you can only gain, you're not so worried. You just need patience until you will cash on your effort. And that's what it is. So now Esav is suggesting to put English in the class, science, geography, history, all kinds of things. Wait a minute, who says it's bad? It's really not bad. Learning English. You need to know English. You live in America. Why do you want to be a moron? Come to the motor vehicle and you don't know how to speak. How can you function? You want everywhere you go to bring your wife to talk for you? Speak the language of the place. It's not a crime to know English. So you need to know English. Math. You need math in life. Tomorrow you have built something. You build something. You buy. You sell. You want to know how to do math? At least learn simple math, no? Nobody asks you to know algebra or, or physics or all kinds of uh, complicated things. But simple math at least you should know, no? History, if it's clean, without kfira, without heresy, without any of that, it's not bad. You want to know the history, right? The problem today that every secular study in every place in the world is full of heresy full of heresy. One boy showed me the books of his school, Jewish school, private, very expensive tuition, very famous school. I don't want to say the name. What happened? English, English, English sure, English lessons, all Buddhism, all pictures of idols, nothing to do with English. Why does it have to be in English? I don't understand. Teach about apples, about horses, about lions. There's many ways to teach English. No. Everything they teach and every exam is 100% Buddhism and Hinduism and Shiva God and this God and all these lousy faces of all these idols in Jewish school. But Hashem, in the end, gives everybody what they deserve. Nobody will get away with this. The people who pushed it into the learning program, the people that forced the children to watch this, the people that murdered their souls, everyone will get what he deserves, soon or later. Some already got, some will get, but no one will run away from Hashem. You should know that, no one. Hashem will give everybody what they deserve, whether it's good reward, which they earned it, or it's a horrible punishment, which they earned it. 
Nobody gets anything randomly. You should remember this. Nothing is random. Every penny who comes in and every penny you lose, it's calculated on Rosh Hashanah based on your actions. If you now doing tshuva, now as we speak, and you have a great man, and you continue to lose, and you continue to pay all kinds of punishments, don't lose hope. Don't call back to the rabbi and say, for one month I'm so good, and I only get more and more problems. The problems you get now, it's for the previous year. On Rosh Hashanah, the last one, Hashem wrote how much you have to get punished based on your bad actions last year. Your good, years, your good actions right now will go into effect in the next Rosh Hashanah. They do not affect right now your everyday life. What you're paying for right now is, was decided on last Rosh Hashanah. So if now you became very good in the last month and you continue to get punches every day, have patience. Next Rosh Hashanah will come, it's re-evaluation. The past year was horrible, you got a lot of punishments. This year was great, let's modify your life. All of a sudden, better job, better parnasar. Yes, Shiduch, until now there was no Shiduch. Yes, children, until now there was no children. Yes, medicine or remedy to your problem, which until now you didn't have. Many things will change to the positive, but you have to have patience. The problem with us, we don't have patience. People do not have patience. Person goes to the doctor for surgery. Let's say in the face. After the surgery, they look like a watermelon face. Everything swollen, stitches. The doctor say to the person, it takes three months for recovery. Three hours after the meeting with the doctor, that person come to his spouse or her spouse. Wow, I look like a monster. My life is over. It's never going to be good. You just heard the doctor say three months for recovery. And he's dealing with that every day. He's making these uh, treatments every day. Why would he say three months? If it would be three days, he would say three days. Every treatment has different kinds of recovery. People do not have patience. Some of them would even commit suicide before the three months will be over. For nothing. Another month, everything will be gone. No one will ever know that you ever even had a, some kind of a problem. Problem with today's world, with this media, and all these Game Boys, and all these intent things that constantly goes into a person, that life became so hectic and a person does not have patience. To be honest, it's all of us. Even I, when someone sends me a video, I only watch it if I have a way to do it two times, on two times. I sit down 10 minutes, 10 minutes now. Oh, times two, five minutes. Quickly. You don't want to burn time. It's all, wow, so many things to do. So life became that people don't have patience. Someone begin to ask a question, after a, a word or two, you only want to cut them off and start answering. Why? I don't have patience now to wait another 15 seconds until we finish the... the, the especially me, <laughs> when, oh, after so many lectures, when a person just moves, I already know what he wants to ask. 
because I know exactly that move happened already 500 times in the last 25 years. When I speak about this, someone goes like this, I already know what he wants to ask. And it's always right. Why? Because people are the same people. You just say something about Mechalel Shabbat that shocked him. He goes like this. You know exactly what, is about, what comment he's about to make. Because he heard it 500 times in the same moment. So you already know. But you have to have patience to let him ask the question. Because imagine now, I did it a few times. When I was in LA, one person said, I have a question. I said to him, I'll answer you. Okay, but I didn't ask. No worry, I'll answer you. <laughs> so I answered him. I don't understand. How do you know my but What's going on here? So don't worry. I'm not a prophet and I don't read your mind. It's a matter of experience. You did it so many times, you already know. Same thing a doctor. When a doctor takes care of his patients, he already know what's going to be 99% of the time the reaction when he takes the bandage off or when they come out of anesthesia, when they look at themselves in the mirror, he already knows what phone call he's going to get. What do you think? He was born yesterday. It's 40 years in this field. Same thing a mechanic. When he changed something, he already knows the customer is going to call and say the light did not go off. They know everything. Why? Experience. This is what it is. <laughs> You go through something so many times. You know, you, the same thing a mother knows her children. They, she knows exactly what's going to happen when she put on the table this kind of food or when she put this kind of food. She knows exactly what's going to happen. Why? She knows who she's dealing with. That's the way it is, Rabotai. So let's move on. So Esav is suggesting, let's become a family. So... You know, now, when Yaakov see that Esav wants already to merge and to become one unit, one family, right? Right away he got up and announced, no, no, lovalo, no. Why do you like me so much? Yaakov asked him. You know, I came here, I offered you a gift, lots of animals. I came to make peace. I didn't want bloodshed. You know, we were enemies for a while. I'm I was willing to give you anything you want. If this gift would not be enough, I would double and triple it. As much money, I don't care. But I'm not willing to compromise to sacrifice even one tiny bit of my children's education and future. This, Adkan, up to here. This is not negotiable. Everything else, yes. Money, business, let's split the wheel in this way. You take more, no problem. Everything I'm willing to let go. The future of the souls of my children, it's not open for negotiation. That's rule number one in raising children. Their future of their soul is not open for negotiation. Which yeshiva are you going to send them? How many tutors they're going to need for their learning to bring them up to date? All kinds of things. What devices you will approve them to have access to or not? This is a world war in our lifetime, especially in this generation. 
עבור, for the education of the children, I will give my life. How much we invest in yeshiva tuition? Person has 10 children. Each one of them is average more than a thousand dollars a month. What he pays for yeshiva in one month in New York is more than what an African guy in, in Uganda makes in 10 years of hard work. What he pays on tuition right here in one month. 10 years in Uganda or in Zimbabwe or in any one of the African places and some other place, parts of the world, or like in India, a person worked the entire month and made maximum, maximum $500 a month. Some places $200 a month. Even in Mexico, a policeman makes $500 a month. That's it. So what you pay on your 10 children for tuition, $10,000 a month for your children alone, for your children in yeshiva, he makes in two years or three years or sometimes five years of work. You spend so much money to bring them up to age 18 that it will be Bnei Torah, that your girls will be modest, that your boys will be clean, with clean head, with no heresy and corruption in their mind, with no horrible pictures in their head that takes them away from Hashem. So much money and so much personal efforts and thousands of hours of prayers and one person, a cousin, a cousin, the son of your brother, will be with your children one or two or three days and will destroy all of them with what he will show them in his device hidden in his pocket. That's it. Million dollar you put on your children, it all went down the drain. They already saw kinds of things, yes, wow. They had some evil inclination. Their mind is now in a different place. Even you showing your children cartoons. You have children. Ah, you put them in front of the screen, all day cartoon. Cartoon channel. What's cartoon, Rabbi? It's not real. <laughs> What's cartoon? Five million scenes in one day, the kids see in one cartoon. Put them in a cartoon. Let them watch for a few hours. First of all, you make them addicted. It's very addictive. Screens are the number one addiction in the world, just like drugs, like heroin and cocaine and all these addictive drugs that people cannot get out of it. Almost all of them, once they're in it, they're in it for life and their life is destroyed. Screens are very addictive. Phones, tablets, uh, what do you call these big screens? No, no, not TV. Huh? Plasma. Plasma screens. All these things, very addictive. You take your child to Costco for shopping for Shabbat. What's the big deal? Big deal. Little child, he comes, see all big screens. What does he see? Football game. Football. Tony throw the ball to Mr. Jackson, who passed it to Mr. Williams. All these big gorillas with the muscles jumping. Not to talk about all the other things. And the kid stands over there. Like, hey, Mendel, what's Marste? Kim do? That's it. His life is over. When he's going to be 16, 
don't be surprised that you're going to find some hidden phone somewhere. You don't understand how delicate is the soul. One mistake, it can be over. One mistake. If people would only know, maybe they will reevaluate the way they raise their children. So give them access to kids, put them in a bed camp in the summer. What kind of kids going to be there? What kind of kids going to be there? You have Monsi kids, clean, they're clean, they don't see any bad things. You put them with Brooklyn kids that walks around in the street and see things. It's already a different world. You see what those kids talk about and what these kids talk about and they begin to ex share experiences. And it creates problems. That's big problems, Rabotai. So we pay so much money and so much efforts and thousands of hours of prayers we, make, we have to make sure that one tiny mistake will not throw everything down the drain. You got to be very careful. Very, very careful. You know, in some places, they were so strict, they did not allow women to come to shuls. No section for women. I want to come to pray in shul. I want to hear Kaddish. I want to hear the laning of the Torah. I'm also a human being, yes. But you're going to come, and there's going to be a hundred women come, and five of them will not be modest. It's always like that. Not everyone is righteous. So there's going to be five women with short skirts and big high heels and red lipstick and wigs all the way to the floor, and they finish the duty free on them, and they talk loud because they have no class and no modesty. And that's what the 500 men will have to see when they come to pray. No, no lady section. I'm sorry from the 90% that will come, modest, down to earth, fully modest, they really come to pray. The 5-10% that will not be like that will ruin the atmosphere. That's what it is, Rabotai. It is what it is. I was once in a place on Shabbat in Israel, for Shabbat in Shul. In Israel, the synagogues is sponsored by the city. You have to open it for everyone. You cannot decide who comes and who doesn't. If you discriminate, somebody who came with a car, you tell them, we cannot come here. This is a place for people that keep the religion. Not people who comes with a car with an iPhone in their pocket. This you can do in your private shul at home. You decide who is allowed and who is not allowed. But when you go to public places like this, it's a little bit of a problem. Big problem. Here, it's not a problem. You have a private shul, even if you have a board, they can make a meeting and make a guideline. Who is welcome here and who is not? And they make rules. They can put a guard in the, in, the, in the door. It's private property. If it's sponsored by the American government and you don't let one person in, ho, 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 what's going to happen to you? Same thing with the schools now. They want to push gay agenda in every yeshiva in Brooklyn and Queens, Manhattan, everywhere, in England. Why they have such chutzpah, the authorities? Because they give money. I'm giving you money, I will decide what you learn. What are you supposed to tell them? Go to hell, you and your money. I don't want your money. But the yeshiva depends on it. It's half of the budget. 
Do you have trust in Hashem, yes or no? If you don't have trust in Hashem, you're not supposed to have a yeshiva b'chalal. You're not an authority to raise children and to educate them. You don't have simple emunah. Rule number one in Judaism is faith. You don't have faith, you think that without these wicked people you're not going to have enough money, you, can, you don't deserve to run an educational institution. I'm sorry. We have to make it real, not fake. Sometimes you will find that after they will cut their budget, the yeshiva went down from 700 children to 200 or 300 kids. Yeah, it's a, it looks like a big loss. That's not my problem. There is a boss in the world and all these children are his children, not mine. I open yeshiva to teach Torah to the kids. If I don't have the money, I, I beg the rich people to give and they don't give. And the yeshiva cannot pay for so many kids to be there and cannot hire so many teachers to come and become a smaller yeshiva. Whose problem it is? His, not mine. I did what the Torah say. We do not compromise on anything when it contradicts the Torah and halacha and Jewish hashkafa. You do not compromise. I gave you a story just a week or two ago that in, in Europe the Russians made a rule that you must teach Russian in yeshivot. That was the rule. And they said, they had a meeting, all the rabbis, and Rav Chaim Ibrisk, huh? Rav Chaim Ivolojin, I'm sorry, Rav Chaim Ivolojin, the student of the Gaomi Vilna, he got up in a meeting, and, he, and the Russians say, if you will not teach Russian in yeshiva, we will shut down your yeshiva. Hundreds of best learners, perhaps in the whole world, learning there, in Volozhin. How many giants came out of this yeshiva? The Russians say, you know, Russian, you don't play games with them. Say no to Putin, we'll see where he's going to end. And this was much worse in those days. In the time of the Tsars, Nikolai, and all these people. It's, well, it's horrible. There's no, there's no freedom there, no you, uh, human rights. It's like trying to say to in China, I'll do it my way. Next thing, you're going to be on a plate of some Chinese, we'll eat you up. You know, in China, when I was there, they told me, they showed me one Israeli guy that lives in China, in Guangzhou. And they say, you want to hear what happened to him? He invested one million dollars to build his office. Made it the fanciest office you can see. Three weeks later, Chinese police came. Huh? You, Mr. Such and Such? Yes. You have until the end of the week to clear all your stuff from this office and leave. We're bringing down this building because we want to make a highway here. No human rights, no objection, no court, no lawyer. China, no human rights. Everything owned by the government. Doesn't matter how much you spend and how much effort you put. 30 years you put into the business. They decide they want it, they, you finish. You have to clear the place. They knocked down the building, nobody obviously paid him for his money, that's it. That's China until now, this moment. They had an Olympic Games or something over there in China. They decided that there are too many motorcycles on the road. You know, in China, I want delivery, delivery with the scooters and more. Too many. 
it wasn't secure enough. They decided to get rid of all the scooters and all motorcycles in China. So what did they do? They put big semi-trailers on the road, police waiting, every scooter that comes, get off, they take it, put it in the semi-trailer, go! That's it, you never see it again. That's China. That's how Russia was, what do you think? Same story, that's communism. Communism, they own everything and you depend on them. By the way, this is how America becoming. Courtesy of Facebook and YouTube and all these uh, social media who destroys us. That's how we become, especially now Democrats taking over. That's how, that's it. No freedom, everyone knows everything about you. They play with your head when you go on Google search. They know exactly what you sell. Next thing, they bum you with advertisement, with all kinds of things they want you to hear. Control your life. So, they came, the Russian. No, what's your decision? Rav Chaim Ivolozhin gave a speech. He said, our job is to do our maximum for Hashem. We can never compromise on the Torah. If we allow Russian language into the yeshiva, that's not going to come just with Russian language. It's going to come with communism and with their opinions and their teachers going to express their own opinions. And today, today is a different problem. Back then it was communism, today it's gays. Every other teacher is corrupted and abomination. So he's going to tell the children, there is a different world, not everything the way you understand. We are also happy. We also have our life. Not everyone has to be religious. I'm also Jewish. That's today the problem in yeshivot. What do you think the teacher teach the kids? Yeah? Why? Because that's how they talk. What do you expect from them? To be religious? They only got a job to teach in yeshiva, math. But in between, he push his ideology. And destroy your children. So wait a minute. What do you mean you got married to your husband? You're a man. Yes, I'm married to a man. But it's not allowed. It's a, it's a death sentence in the Torah. Ah, that's, that was thousands of years ago. Nobody believes in it anymore. What do you think he's going to say? Can you control what he speaks? He's going to speak all the garbage he believes in. Inside to your holy children's yeshivot, neshamot. So Rav Chaim Ivolozhin say, whatever happened, happened, it's not in our hands. But we will not allow with our hands to burn the Torah here and the children's souls. And the Russian closed the yeshiva. The Russian closed the yeshiva. And what do you think happened? Ten yeshivot came out. There were so many big rabbis there. One went here, one went there. They spread all over. And the best Ashkenazi yeshivot in the world came from this. This one and this one. I don't remember all their names, but the best yeshivot. They opened yeshiva here and another one there and another one there. So one great yeshiva turned into more than ten. Why? You do not compromise on the truth. What happened is right in my hand. And I know when I, when I come to Hashem, and he's going to ask me this question, I will have a solid answer. Whatever happened is not my fault. I follow your guidelines and regulations. You say you don't mix the Torah with garbage and with horrible ashkafa and with all kinds of abomination. I did not allow it. They come to bully us. No, there's not going to be a shiva. We learn in bunkers, under the ground, like they used to do. That's it. 
What? Because we do not open for negotiation. Remember this. That's what's happening here today. Reform, conservative, modern orthodox, open orthodoxy. Where all this garbage came from? Where did it come from? You begin to compromise on something small, 200 years later, you have nothing to do with Judaism. Now, one thing is even come from Judaism. Look at the Reform people today. What Jewish mitzvah they keep? Not even one. Nothing. Nothing. Even circumcision they do by a doctor in a hospital. They make bar mitzvah to dogs. They try to do some things on purpose to get the Orthodox people upset. Like women come to the Kotel with tefillin and Sefer Torah. Whoa, they're so religious, these women. They want to put tefillin. Wow, if God, they, one day they won't put tefillin. Wow, I wish they were so devoted when it comes to the real Torah. Why she has such a desire to put tefillin? Because it's a sin for her. She's in the middle of Nida and this, putting tefillin, the name of Hashem on her body. On purpose! Everything that motivates them is to get Hashem and the religious people angry. Nothing else. It's not that they all, let them also do mitzvah. So what? They're wicked, but they sometimes want to do good. Never. Never. Even when they give donation, check where their donations go to. Uh, Palestinian, BDS, ev everything not kosher. Now one kosher cause. Now one kosher cause you don't find. Why? You think Hashem will let them? Give donation to a kosher cause? No, absolutely not. Throughout generations, our fathers gave their life to protect their children. Sometimes, mamash, literally, they died for it. Not to expose their children to the garbage around. Today, it's the worst it's ever been. The world has never been so dangerous like now. There was no social media, there was no internet, no phones, no screens everywhere you go. You cannot avoid it today. There's no way to go one minute on the street without watching all the dirt. In the old days, it wasn't like that. But now it's everywhere you go. You cannot run away from it. Right? So, i give you an example. Rav Moshe Feinstein Zatzal was 25 years old. He was called to be the rabbi of Leuven, Leuven in Russia. It's a city, I guess. When was that? In the Bolshevik Revolution. Bolsheviks. It was horrible darkness in the world at that time. The, the government fought the religion and followers of the religion systematically. And everything that was connected to religion, they did everything they can to destroy. They arrested the shochet of the keilah, the one who slaughtered the shechita, and they sent him to Siberia. Siberia. I don't have to tell you what's happening there. Usually if you go there, you don't come out of there alive. Or not normal, one of the two. Rav Moshe Feinstein's salary was, uh, 
repossessed by them. They put like a, a ban on his salary. He doesn't get paid. They became literally starving. No food, no income. They, put, they froze the salary of the rabbi. Every day of Moshe Feinstein's life was in danger. Every day. He doesn't know if he make it for tomorrow. How much life risks to be a rabbi in those days. But he continued to teach Torah and to take care of the community. He was very, very big holy tzaddik, tamid chacham, with emunah. Only cares about is him and Hashem. That's it. The Rabbanit, the wife of Rabbi St. Feinstein, also with her husband, together, in a war. They're starving, no problem. We are here to do what Hashem told us. The rest is not in our hand. He wants us to starve, we starve. Top, no, and then what? The government did not like Rav Moshe Feinstein teaching Torah. So it was just a matter of time until they arrest him. Everybody knew every week that he's still free, it's a miracle. They're probably planning how to arrest him. Right? And they already started to watch, to come, to show them, themselves around, the police. So you already know your days are, you know. So what happened? The next thing, they took away his apartment. They closed the lock. That's it. He cannot come in. Rav Moshe had three sons and his father-in-law, which, which, which was a very old man. They moved to live in the house of the Gabai of the community. Imagine now. Husband and wife, three sons and an old man. Six people in a living room. There wasn't uh, mentions of uh, Connecticut. We're talking small apartments. Six guests sleeping in your living room, especially the one of them is the chief rabbi. Not exactly ideal, right? No. So, and the rabbi has seven children. So in one apartment, husband and wife and seven children, nine, and now has six more guests. Fifteen people in one apartment. And there was one bathroom, probably for the whole building. Okay? And Rav Moshe Feinstein continued with his teaching. One time, one time, one time Rav Moshe Feinstein announced that he's leaving. He's leaving. That's it. He wanted to go to Eretz Israel. He did not know if to go to Israel or to America. Rav Moshe Feinstein tried to apply to Israel, to go to Israel. They did not approve him. Nothing is new under the sun. Today they don't approve religious people. Back then they also didn't, didn't want so much religious people. But he kept trying. And it didn't work, so he, he just applied to America. The, 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 the story, there's a story behind it that Rav Aaron Kotler, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, he, 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 he asked him to come to America. He said, America just started. 
We need people like you here. It's a big giant chacham. We need more rabbis in America. And Rav Moshe Feinstein didn't know if this is what Hashem wants. Hashem wants me to go from Russia to America. I want to go to Israel. So he made Goral. Opened the Chumash. What came out? Vayomer Hashem el Moshe lech etzel Aharon. God said to Moshe, go to Aaron. He is Moshe Feinstein, Aaron Kotler. God is answered. That's what brought Rav Moshe Feinstein to America. And he got a permit. Got a permit. He had a bed in Lower East Side. And his son just passed away a month ago. Of David Feinstein, Zatzal. Both of them was, were 91 when they passed. Rav Moshe and Rav David. Interesting. So I have hundreds of stories to tell you about him, about him, which many of them I said over the years. It's not the time to repeat them now. But now he decided to leave. The people of his community saw him going through all the years of struggle, not complain. We are soldiers of Hashem. We have to give everything we can. Why all of a sudden you quit? Why all of a sudden you quit? The answer is... As long as my children were not in spiritual jeopardy, hunger, no problem. Chased by these filthy, wicked cops, no problem. Being denied from our own apartment, no problem. Living on the streets, no problem. Living in someone's living room, no problem. Risking the neshamot of our children, I cannot be here another day. That's it, up, up to here. At Khan, Rav Moshe Feinstein decided to get up and leave. Rav Moshe said, before he left, Akshayim enam atridim oti. Difficulties do not bother me. Danger does not scare me. No matter how dangerous the situation is, that's not what making me leave. I think I proved to you over the years that I'm not scared from that. I'm not afraid of people. I'm only afraid of Hashem. But now the situation has changed. My children grew up and this place is a horrible example for them. What they see around. I must take care of their education. And and I'm afraid, I'm afraid, even I'm afraid to leave you alone without a spiritual leader. But on the other hand, we have rules. The life of you and the life of your children come before the life of the community. Or the life of your cousins or the life of your brother. You and your children are coming before everyone else. That's what Rav Yossi said to the rich man in Egmara. Rav Yossi Bar Kisma, he told him, I'll give you any amount of money. Come to live with us and teach us Torah. We don't have a rabbi. He told him, if you give me all the money in the world, I will not go to live in any place unless there is already a lot of Torah there. Why? I will not jeopardize my own children to go save others and, and lose my own children. That's not what Hashem told me to do. You understand? So Rav Moshe Feinstein told them once the children are in danger, 
There's nothing I can do. I know one rabbi in Israel that lived in one bedroom apartment with 11 children. One sleep on top of the other. You know this bed that opened to three? Not double, three. And in each one there are three children. Three, three, and three. Where the other two slept, I don't remember. But that was it is, nine children. One here, one there, like this, like sardines. One bedroom apartment in Jerusalem, it's expensive. Avrech learned Torah all day. After he finally, after years, one rich guy saw it, decided to give him some money, told him, sell your apartment, move to two bedroom. It's another $50,000. I'll get the extra. You sure? Yeah. Put this house for sale, found another place. A little bit bigger. Also very small. One more tiny room, that's it. Now, one child got married, another one got married. We have still nine. It's easier to divide them in two rooms. Maybe a year or a year and a half after they move into the new place, he comes and say to me, I'm gonna, this number will no longer be in service probably within two or three weeks. I said, why? So we move again. I'm gonna have to move. I say to him, why you have to move? You just move. Where do you move? I say, I have to move out of this neighborhood. I say to him, why? I say, I cannot talk about it right now on the phone and the people next to him. When I see you face to face, I'll tell you. A few days later, I went there. I sat with him. I asked him, why are you moving? Everything okay? He told me, you see my youngest girl? Very pretty girl. Very, very pretty girl. She's only 14. But she looks very pretty. When she walks here on the street, all the off-the-derech kids are starting to talk to her. Kids that used to be religious and they became, you know, street boys. I cannot jeopardize her future living here. So now they're gonna move again to a different area. Do you understand the devotion? How many people would do this? I asked him, what about, there's no police here, no mishmeret sniyut, these kids not afraid of anyone. You don't want to start with them a war, it can become violent. What happened? Moved again. Moved again to a very strict religious place. Small, like this one. Same man, amount of money. So, but it's not easy to find a buyer and to find a place to buy. Within two, three weeks, found someone to buy the place and found a place to buy. Why? Because when you want to do the right thing, Hashem helps. Miracles helps. He first found a place to buy, but now he cannot buy it until he's going to sell this one. Right away, Hashem found the person. Why? To save the girl. The other girls are already all there on Shiduchim. They sell it. That's it. The boys are in Torah. Only that young girl to save her life moved again. You know how difficult it is to move. Just the amount of books, you have thousands of books to put them in boxes. Imagine the job. All the books, non-stop, all the house full of books. Imagine, look at all these books behind you. Try to imagine now to put them in boxes and pack them with tapes. How, much, how, many, how many days is it going to take? 
besides the wall unit and the beds and, and the plates. It's a big job. Why? To save one soul. Why? I come in front of Hashem. He's going to tell me, why your girl left the religion and ran away with some criminal? I'm going to say, what do you want from me? This is, I didn't teach her there in the house. And she didn't learn it in yeshiva. But she learned it on the street. What do you want from me? I'm not the God. I'm not controlling the streets. But you needed to make an, a, a, a devotion. You had to sacrifice. Ah, but it's not convenient. It's a lot of effort, a lot of headache to get used to a new place. But what about your children? Don't you know that one kid you lose is worse than a world war? That's what the Gemara say. One kid that goes off the derech, it's worse than milchemet gog umagog. Worse than milchemet gog umagog. People kill themselves over it. People kill... Uh, literally, there are parents who kill themselves because their kids went off to drugs or to become criminals or who knows what else. Why? They couldn't live with, the, with this feeling that it's their fault. Do you know how many thousands of parents over the years call me to cry to me? How they eat their heart because they didn't know that much. The way they raised their children in public school and they all marry goyim. And now the parents, sometimes it's only a mother, sometimes it's only a father, sometimes it's both. After the kids went and married goyim on their own because they grew up in public school and went to university. What do you expect? Intermarriage is more than 70% here. And now the parents became strictly religious. We have to see how they cry. Oh, every time when I go to their community to speak, which is out of New York, the same story, same woman will come and cry nonstop, nonstop for half an hour. And there's nothing you can do. You have to stand there and listen to her. How she kills herself, how she raises her children in public school. One where he goes, yeah, another one this and that. They don't want to look at her. They call her crazy because she became Shomeret Shabbat. You raise your children to be goyim. One day it goes around against you like a boomerang. What do you think? One day you will open up your eyes. And you will have to be facing what you cooked. What you cook, you have to eat. The biggest problem is the next world. One thing you suffer here. Now you have to stand in front of Hashem and they show you the damage that happened because of your stupidity. Because of your... There's one place I spoke here in Queens 20 years ago. I went to a house of Israeli businessmen. Nice house. Israeli guy. The kids were young. This was 20 years ago. I spoke over there and I told him, you should take these kids and move them to yeshivot. Don't leave them in public school. It will destroy you. Take them out. It's not a joke. Put them in yeshivot. He said to me, yeah, look, we're only starting to be Shomer Shabbat. We're not that religious. What yeshivot? It's going to come to me with tzitzit, this. You know, give me excuses. We have television in the house. I said, get rid of the television. That's not an excuse. Because you make one crime, now you're going to make other crimes because it doesn't look, it doesn't make sense. If I do this crime, how can I make this mitzvah? It doesn't work this way. 
take this, at least the oldest boy, take him out, put him in yeshiva. You have money, you have business, what's the problem? I left. I spoke one time in his house, that's it. Never saw him after that. 14 years went by. 14 years. The boy back then was 6 to 8, something like that. 6 or 8, not more than 8. 14 years went by. I went to Main Street and 70, across the street from TD Bank, there's a Bukhari and vegetable place. I go inside, I buy some vegetables for Shabbat. One of me, this man, he has nice hair, you know, looks like a movie star. Dress always nice. Soon as he saw me, he burst into such crying. It's one of everyone in the store. It's a very embarrassing moment. It was Monday around 7 p.m. for this lecture here. You had to see I was crying, holding the card, me and him face to face, crying in front of everyone. Crying, crying. It's a real macho guy. Israeli, tough guy. You don't know how much I suffer from not listening to you. You don't know. Every day I curse the day I was born for not taking your advice back then when you were in my house. What happened? Tell me that boy that you begged me to move him to yeshiva is an heroin addict. Everything I had, I lost. My business, my home, every money I saved. It took away everything. My credit card, my bank account, got me lawyers, problem. Now I'm speaking to you now, I'm penniless, and I don't even know where he is. Every day something new with him. If I only listen to you, what am I supposed to answer him to put more salt on his wound. We both, I, I basically held myself not to cry with him in public there. But here's a situation of thousands of people around here, thousands. Around here, thousands. Do you know how many kids die from drugs here in a community? You don't hear about it anymore. They died and you don't hear. They make a quick funeral and nobody knows about it. They disappear. Why? I'm embarrassed to talk about it. That's the price, Rabotai. That's the price of raising children in public school. They either become drug addicts or they marry non-Jews and leave everything, no nothing, and your grandchildren will be not Jewish. And, or if they don't do any one of the above, they are secular. They have no share to the world to come. Either way, it ends in a tragedy. Tragedy either in intermarriage, or drugs, or crime, or they're just secular. One way or the other. Either way, they have no share to the world to come. And you have to pay for it. No excuses. Some people say, listen, I'm poor. I will have what to say to Hashem. It's your fault, not mine. He gave me an extra 200,000 a year to my salary. I would be able to afford yeshivot. But I'm, I'm only a worker. From the $1,000 a week that I make, I cannot send kids to yeshivot. Good excuse or no? Nonsense. Doesn't even begin. Because vacation, somehow they took every year. 
few televisions they have in every room. Somehow, they can afford to go once a week to a restaurant and eat a lot of shish kebab. And, and, assuming they're not doing any one of the above, assuming, if one of their kids needed a kidney replacement, the doctor said, I'm sorry, your kid's kidneys do not function, dialysis does not help, he needs a new kidney. And you have a black market to get a kidney. How much it used to be, I don't know anymore, $150,000 for a kidney. And you don't have a penny on the side. You work for $1,000 a week, that's it. 60 hours a week, that's what it is. That's what you bring home. What would you do? Run all over the world and beg people for money. You come to the rabbi of this shul and the next shul and the next shul. Help me out. Look, my son, this is the doctor. I must find a kidney in three weeks. If not, he's going to die, the kid, in a month or two. I need to raise 150000 In three days, he would raise the money. Why? To save the child's life. I don't get it. Do you believe in Hashem or not? The Torah said the soul of your child is a trillion times more important than his life. If he dies young but righteous, he went to heaven express. What are you complaining about? But if he will continue to live and become secular, that's a world war in your house, the Gemara say. Milchemet Gogu Magog. Worse than Milchemet Gogu Magog. Gogu Magog, two-thirds of the people in the world will die. Five billion people will die in minutes. The Gaumi Vilna say it will take 12 minutes. There was no nuclear in his time, 250 years ago. Today we understand how, but back then how did he know? Gogu Magog will be 12 minutes, the Gaon Mivina said. 5 billion people in 12 minutes. We know today how. So, <clears throat> 5 billion people will die, and the other third, many of them will also die, and it's going to be a disaster in the world for who knows how many years. And one Neshama that lost their connection to Hashem, the Gemara says it's worse than this entire world. And you are asking now if you have money to yeshiva or not, you fool. You would run and scream on the street, help me out. You would go to your rich brother, put your ego down, help me out, you have millions. I want to put this boy also in yeshiva, I can't afford, help me out. Talk to some of your rich friends, everyone will chip in two, three hundred dollars a month. It's going to be their mitzvah. I told you once the story that I once went to speak in a kindergarten here in Queens. In a kindergarten. I used to give their lectures from time to time. At night. At night it's closed, so they just used it for lectures. One time I went there. The woman and her husband that they organizing it, now they moved to Israel. But back then they still lived here in Queens. And the wife brought all her friends to that lecture. First lecture I gave there. All her American friends. Back then, they were all around 20 years old. 20, 21. That's what their ages. After the lecture, one girl, redhead, redhead, Ashkenazi Russian girl, came to America when she was a little kid with her parents from Russia. 
She came to me after the lecture, very religious, white scared. You can see right away, she's a quality girl, very modest. She told me, I hear you from Monsi in Yeshiva there. I'm looking for very religious boy for strictly learn all day. No one anything else, just learning. Maybe if you have someone for me, you can let me know. I say, yeah, yeah, write down the information. Maybe if I have someone in mind, I'll give you a call. Three months later, they invited me again. I came, maybe four months later, I can't really tell you exactly, but it was shortly after. I came in, all the friends were there besides this redhead. She didn't come. So I said, I see almost all your friends came, but that girl that asked me for shiduch, she didn't come. She said, oh, you want to know why she didn't come? Why? She just got married. Wow, I was very happy for her. Baruch Hashem. She just got married a few days ago. Got married so quick. Baruch Hashem. Then she says, she sees that I'm connecting my laptop to the overhead projector. Then she say one more sentence. Now remember, there was more than a hundred secular boys and girls in that lecture. I have to give them a lecture about proofs that the Torah is divine. So I'm connecting my equipment. And then she say to me, do you want to hear how she got married? How she got married? She met a guy and got married. I realized right away there has to be a juicy story here. Since I have five minutes until I'll be ready, I say, yeah, tell me. Now they all listen. All these secular people are listening. She said to me when she came with her parents from Russia, they were very poor. They didn't have a penny. They did not have a penny. And I grew up with her in school. We went to yeshiva together. Now one time she had money for lollipop. Forget about bus or anything like that. Never. How the parents could afford to send her to yeshiva? They didn't have money. So someone told them, there is a Russian organization here. They collect money from wealthy Russian and they give it to poor Russian to go to yeshiva. Make an application. For sure they will approve you. You don't have anything. You just came here. They made an application. Right away, they found them a sponsor. Sponsor, a secular Russian businessman. Secular. That his children goes to public school. Maybe private, but not religious. They came to him and said, a religious Russian girl, their parents wants to put her in yeshiva and they don't have the money. At least a few hundred dollars a month. Would you take her on you and sponsor that? And he said yes. And he started to pay her tuition and she went to that yeshiva with this girl. The years went by. After she asked me for shiduch, she went to some library here, somewhere. She sat down and one girl came to her. How? A Jewish girl, totally secular, short sleeves, short pants, Everything, nothing religious. Hi, nice to meet you. My name is such and such. I see you, religious girl. Yes, yes, hi, how are you? I have a feeling that I have a good uh, shiduch for you. Uh, you know, I'm very religious. I'm looking to marry someone for full-time learner in yeshiva. So, great! I have the right guy for you. Who? My brother. <laughs> 
tell me who your brother, I'll tell you who you are. It's the other way around. She says, how she dressed. What kind of a brother she's going to have? But then she told her, no, no, don't look at me like this. I'm not religious. My, my brother is very good Baal Tshuva. He went to Monsi for yeshiva. He learned there. Now he wants only a very religious girl and he likes to learn. I'm telling you, I have a feeling he's going to like you and you're going to like him. Okay, give me the number of his rabbi. He can talk to my rabbi. They started to do the checking. Decided that it's actually a good match. They went out. Baruch Hashem. Perfect shiduch from Hashem. Now, her poor parents have to meet the father of the boy. There's always that moment that the parents are meeting. So they took a taxi and they drove to their house. They invited a few rabbis from the yeshiva, you know, the lechaim. As they came to the place, from the conversation, how you here, how you came to America, what yeshiva she went to, what's her name, this, that, they found out that the father of the boy is that Russian businessman that paid her yeshiva for 16 years. She went to yeshiva for 16 years, he paid it, and she became his daughter-in-law. What are the odds? Ah, Gabi, you ever heard such a story? Seven and a half million, billion people in the world. 400 million people in America. What are the odds that she will sit in a place and a girl would look at her and see and think that she's good for my brother? Look how Hashem runs the world, gives her an idea. Most girls would not have the guts to come talk to a religious girl the way she dressed. But when it has to happen, it has to happen. So that Russian guy, I don't know what he's doing now, but I know one thing, that if he has brain in his head, that second he had to become a Baal Tshuva, not the day after. Because if that's not going to make you a Baal Tshuva and running after Hashem, what else will? After you see such miracle in your own eyes that involve with you, that you think you're doing a favor to some poor girl and you're actually preparing the best girl for your own son. And Hashem brings her to her from a back door. Imagine, Rabotai, this other story. I have a few more good stories like this that happened with me in my book. In my book, I put them in a book. Hashem, we're working on a second book. It's already finished. Now it's the technical things. Huh? That was the best part. I asked them that. I said to them, no, it was Hebrew, Israeli crowd. They all scream, no. They were all shocked. What a, what a normal person would not be shocked from such a story. Huh? And remember, Abotai, there's no chance that something like this can happen random. No matter how secular you are, you must be honest. The chance that something like this will happen by itself, naturally, randomly, it does not exist. That such a thing will happen. After so many years, there, that, that, or more, she's ending up in your house. It's similar to the story of Yosef. 
Yosef is, is thrown into the pit. And what happened? He became the strongest person in the world and saved the entire Jewish nation. Who would ever believe such thing? I want to ask you a question. Two people were involved with what happened to Yosef. Reuven and Yehuda. Reuven and Yehuda. What did Reuven say to do to Yosef? Huh? Throw him into the pit. What did Yehuda say? Why should we kill him? Sell him to the Arabs. They'll take him to Egypt. Egypt was San Francisco, like today, or New Orleans. Something like that. Imagine this. Now I want to ask you a question. Reuven threw him to a pit full of snakes and scorpions. Judah said, why should we kill him? We should sell him to the Goim, let them take him. Which one did the right thing? Reuven or Judah? Judah. Huh? If you ask a Balabait, a professor in university, from Harvard or Columbia or NYU, Mr. Professor, one brother threw him into a pit with snakes, and one brother said, let's sell him to the Goim of New Orleans and San Francisco. Which one of the two deserve a bigger punishment? What would he say? The first one, to throw him into the, into the snakes. That's a Balabite opinion. What's the opinion of the Torah and the Gemara? Judah was guilty. Why? How many millions of times I have to repeat it? How many? Until people will get it. The opinion of God, not mine, not the rabbis, of God, Hashem, the creator of the world, what did he teach us? Gadol amachtio yoter min ha-horgo. Someone who took a soul and lower his level spiritually, make him commit sins, is worse than someone who actually physically killed him. It's a fact. And it's not open for negotiation. So when you take your child and give him a punch and kill him, you are a horrible murderer. There's no question about it. And you deserve a punishment of a murderer. No discount. But when you, <clears throat> when you send him to public school, you are much, much, much worse. Because you destroyed his neshama guarantee. In all the conflicts and dilemmas, and difficulties, and spiritual crisis that he will have in his life, it's all your fault. That's why he has to struggle now. How many kids are trying to become fully Baalei Tshuva and they fail? Why? The high school and the university that I went to destroyed their mind. How many rabbis that grew up in good yeshivot and one day decided to go and get a degree and I went to universities and became complete heretic. Reshaim Gmurim, Machtiya Rabim. What happened to the 10 years you were in yeshiva? 
four years in university and you became so corrupted and so wicked and pro-gay and pro-feminism and pro-democrats and pro-abortion and against strict rabbis and against Chazal. How you became like this? Sitting in university, smelling the filth of all the wicked people over there. What do you think? There's a price for it. What do you expect? What do you think? It comes out of nowhere. It comes, or Rabbi Akiva say, Rabbi Akiva brings a list of people that do not have a share to the world to come. One of them is someone that read books that are not Torah. Greek mythology. Shakespeare. Yes. Liberalism. Feminism in a new world. New world order. Islam. Christianity. Out of curiosity. Rabbi, there's nothing wrong with being educated. Okay, you want to be educated? The Torah is wider than the ocean. You're going to learn a million years, you won't know 1% of the Torah. You have plenty of education over there. In every field you can think of. Go and sit and learn. No, no, he has to learn philosophy and psychology. Okay, he learns psychology. Half of what they teach is true. Half of what they teach is a killer. Poison to life. Destroyed marriages. Destroyed children. Destroyed relationship. Destroy everything. Destroy your soul. Some of the things they teach is true. Not everything is false. But all you need is 10% to be false and you're done. That's it. Marriage counselor. Go and listen to one session of a secular marriage counselor. Almost everything they give advice, it's against Hashem. That's definitely not going to help the marriage. It will destroy the marriage even more. Anger management. They want to teach you to stop with your anger. You're violent. You give punches. You scream. You curse. Your wife threw you out of the house ten times already. That's the last chance you have. So you go to a specialist. How he became a specialist? How? He didn't go to yeshiva. He has some kind of a degree. Psychologist. So he's an expert in anger management. I have a recommendation for you. What's the recommendation, professor? There is a place. You go there before you go to work. And you get all your anger out of your system. What do you mean? Don't worry. Here is the card. Call them. Tell them I, refer I forward you. He goes over there. Someone told me that once, years ago. He goes inside. The people over there have punching, punching bags, you know, for boxers, everywhere hanging. And the teacher over there say, as soon as I say go, all of you run and scream like crazy. Ah, boom, 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 like this for five minutes. Scream, scream, punch, kick, punch. Choke it, kill it, get all your anger out of your system until you feel you have no energy left. They all go boom, bam, ah, screaming like Meshugaim. After that, everyone is calm, yes, have a nice day. Now they go to work. What do you think about this genius idea? Huh? Huh? 
We have a rule. God told us about the human psychology. After the actions, follows the hearts, not the other way around. You think what my heart desires, I'm willing to follow. That's also true. But it's the other way around usually more often. After you do something a few times, you begin to like it. After you begin to like it and you're comfortable with that, it becomes a way of life. So if you come and punch and scream, da 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 da, until now if you violent 40%, after this course, you'll be 80% violent. Until now you gave your wife a punch or two. Now her head will become a soccer ball in a field across the street. Why? Because you went to that advice. Because he has a lot of university, uh, you know, uh, education. He gave you some advices. Or in marriage, they tell you watch all kinds of dirty things. They think this specialist, I don't want to say their name, they have a name, better not to put it in your mouth. The specialist of intimacy, they have an idea. It's boring. You are together for too many years. You have to revive your relationship. I don't want to tell you what they suggest, where they should go, and what sins they should do. Shemirachem, Salom and Gamora are children compared to them. Little kids compared to these wicked advisors and the people that listens to them. But only it's enough that they watch the dirty things that they suggest, and now they hate each other even more. <laughs> because it's all become an illusion. They're not really together. He thinks about someone and she thinks about someone. The entire relationship is all corrupted from A to Z. Courtesy of the University of New York. Or Israel or any other place. You understand, Rabotai? What do you think when a strict Orthodox rabbi screams against these things? What do you think? It's primitive? It's old-fashioned? No, no. We don't care about fashion. We don't care about fashion. Fashion is not the issue here. Old-fashioned, new fashion, who cares about these things? The question is, comply with the laws of God or against it? God is not out of fashion and will never be. If you think that you will invent things in the world that will overcome the advice of God, you are nothing but a fool. Because when the creator of the world gave a book of instruction to humanity, what do you think? That it becomes obsolete at one point? No. It will be relevant for eternity. That's my complaint about some of these teachers today that do not want to, do not want to talk about punishments. Why they don't want to talk about punishments? Why? Because they say we're afraid to turn them off. We're afraid that people would not like the Torah if they read about the strict punishment of God. So they will run away. The answer is it's total baloney and total nonsense and foolishness. Why? You think you're smarter than God? It's similar to the vegetarian people. A rabbi or a speaker that say, I do not want to talk about the strict judgment of the Torah or all the things that the Talmud brings out. I do not want to mention it in my speeches because I'm afraid to scare people. Is similar. 
Benji, what's going on? Control your phone already. It's not your phone. That's okay. You see, you just you lost 5,000 scenes in one second. You know why or no? If you get blamed for something you're not guilty of and you don't make a big deal out of it, it's fantastic clean out. <laughs> Next time you should say it's my phone. Then you double the, the effect. There was one, key, one son with his father went to a lecture in Israel. They sat in the first or the second row. And every second the phone rang. And the son went like this. You know these people? I all of a sudden forgot how to put the phone off. A second later. You know the Israelis. You don't need second time. First time, half of the people are ready to choke you. Second time, 80%. Third time, even the speaker wants to choke you. So the boy keeps going like this, and it keeps ringing. Well, come on, what's going on? Take the battery out, do something, get out. By the end of the lecture, the speaker called the son. And he said to him, nobody here knows what you did besides me. Because I'm facing you and they're all behind you. But I'm not so sure that what you did is what Hashem wanted you to do. What did this boy did? The phone of his father was ringing and he was pretending it's his. That the people won't get angry at his father, they get angry at him. But I'm not, the speaker told him, I'm not so sure. Maybe it would be better off that they know this old man doesn't know how to operate the phone, they'll get less angry. Now they see a 20 years old son going like a fool like this 10 times and makes more anger in Chilul Hashem. Top. So anyway, so where were we now? <laughs> we arrived to this place. So the speaker that says that I don't want, I don't want to scare them off, it's similar to a vegetarian. What's the common denominator of the speaker to the vegetarian? No? Who can tell me why it's similar? Very good, Benji. Benji has enough experience. He knows. So, they both think they are smarter than God. The vegetarians, you ask him, why you don't eat steaks? Why you don't eat chickens? Why you don't eat fish? What does he say? I think it's brutal. It's cruel. It's animal's cruelty. To slaughter an animal like this in a throw, would you agree that they'll do such thing to you? Would you agree that they put you in a cage and take you and slaughter you just because I want to eat meat? Very convincing point. But what can we do that the creator of the cow and the creator of a man and the creator of the knife and the creator of everything gave us instructions what you can eat and what you cannot eat and how you can make it kosher. And the way to kill an animal before you eat it is with a sharp knife in a short, quick slaughtering that the animals do not feel anything. You disconnect the two cords on the front and finish. And you see that a part of life is eating meat. Beta Mikdash sacrifices the Kohanim eating meat every day. The whole culture is based on Yom Tov. 
ושמחת בחגיך, דגמרא say, wine and meat. Today, it's no big deal to eat meat. People, some, some people eat twice a day meat. You know, I, I had a Bukharian student when I was teaching Maraim Yeshiva. He also liked meat very much, this guy. All the time with the mangal, the grill. <laughs> so I told him, listen, you're eating too much meat. It's not healthy. Eat in Shabbat, Yom Tov. That's it. What do you need every day? Meat. Be a gorilla like this. Say, you're looking at me? You have to see my grandfather. <laughs> what? So my grandfather, Bli Ainara, 6 a.m. is already with a mangal. <laughs> I told him, 6 a.m.? Who can eat steaks at 6 a.m.? That's what I'm telling you. That's my grandfather. When you like meat, you like meat. The Torah didn't say to eat meat like crazy non-stop. No. Holiday, Shabbat, the Gemara say. Today, everybody likes to eat meat sometimes every day, and it's nothing special anymore. Today, we have a refrigerator. So what you don't need, you put in a refrigerator. Back in time, they only slaughter an animal when there was a special event, like a holiday, Korban Pesach, all these things, because otherwise the meat will go to the garbage. There's no refrigerator. So if a little family will not slaughter a goat now. It's enough for 40 people. So only when there's a special occasion, like a holiday, so the neighbors buy one goat, slaughter it, divide it to two, three families, and they eat, and there's no leftover. But it was a special event. But you see that eating meat is something that brings a person pleasure. And Hashem said in the holidays, I want you to have physical pleasure. Many of the things in life that have physical pleasure, Hashem is interested that we'll enjoy them as long as it won't become an addiction. Intimacy. Does it have to be with pleasure? Who say? A man and a woman, they want to have a child. Hashem would make a rule. Press on her nose 30 seconds while she's pressing on your nose for 30 seconds. Mazal tov. You'll have twins in, in nine months. Who, who's to say that has to be involved with some kind of physical pleasure? You see, that has no problem that you will have it. As long as you are under control. Food. Why the food has to have so many flavors? Why? Make everything taste like bread and water and that's it. Bread and water. Bread, put bread, all the vitamins you want. Water. And that's all we eat all our life. There's nothing else besides bread and water. First of all, nobody will be fat, that's for sure, because most of the people that gain weight is only because of delicious food. If the food would not be delicious, who would eat cream cakes if it tastes like bread? Right? So you only eat to be full, that's it. Nothing else. The extra addiction, that's what kills us. The extras. But things that we're supposed to do just to survive, I don't mind. Enjoy. Enjoy bread, enjoy cheese, enjoy meat, enjoy fish, no problem. It's all have delicious flavor. Spices, why you made so many spices? You know how many millions of different flavors you have on a tongue? <laughs> the tongue, together with the brain, is the most advanced computer you will ever find. To create something like this will be streets, buildings, computer size of a building. To make such a system that every little thing that touched the tongue in different places 
creates flavor and goes into the brain and the brain translates this flavor to sweet, to bitter, to sour. So many different things. Same thing smells. Thousands of different smells. This smell and this one and this one and this one. And the eyes, how many colors the eyes and how many objects the eyes observe in one second. One, one second I'm sitting in front of you right now. My eye records more than a billion items. And it goes into the brain and in less than a second, the brain records one billion objects in details. Everything is recorded in the soul. And that's what we call subconscious. Meaning, if you ask me now, every book on a library here, on the shelves, probably 2,000 books here or more, and he would ask me after the lecture on the way out, Rabbi, can you describe to us all the books on the shelves? I said, well, are you normal? Who would look, who looked at the books now? I was looking at you people and, uh, and the lecture. I can maximum name five people that I know from the lecture. Best case scenario. Benji, Gavi, David, and a few other guys. Finish. Ruben, Chaim. That's it. How many people I know by names even? That was the end of it. That's all you can say from the lecture? A one-minute speech? Who was there? What was in the room? Yes, the clock, this, that. That's it. Some lights, chandelier, rug. That's all I remember. But if you hypnotize me, I will give you a one-year speech about this room. I'll tell you every book, which one is first, second, color, everything big, tall, one comes, some tilted left, some to the right, the clock every flower on the clock, the exit sign, everything written here, over there, the air condition, every crystal piece in a chandelier, every stain on a rug, everything I'll tell you in details. And this is, if you put me in a room for one second, you put me here, open your eyes, you, you bring me in, a handkerchief is around my eyes, first time I'm in this room, first time, you make me sit over here, you close my eyes, you take it off, one second, I look at the room, you pull it right back on, and you take me out, and you hypnotize me outside. Five years later, five years later, from my brain, I will tell you every dot on the wall. Can you tell me on the wall there's a stain? Which one? On the left. Yes, yellow stain, and over there, everything, camera, this one, that light, this, every little thing. Now imagine, this was one second in a room. Imagine eight years of life. How many snapshots? Imagine ten different reincarnations. Everything is recorded in a soul. Every picture, every beep. One woman in Israel, an old woman, she was standing in Batyam in a bus stop with a bag. Old woman in her late 70s. Two people with motorcycle came by. One is the driver and the one behind is the thief. They're both still. And the woman was standing like this, he grabbed her bag, and the, uh, and the guy speed with the, with the mo and the woman fell on the floor. Because she was trying to hold the bag, and they were driving away, and she fell forward. They called the police, did you see anything? No. What color was the motorcycle? Nothing. I only heard voice, and I fell on the floor, and someone grabbed my bag. Can you give us the plate number? No, I told you I didn't see anything. Anyone here? Nobody saw anything. Now they took her. This is a story that happened. 
In Batyam, there's a special investigation unit of the police. They took her to a place. They brought a specialist to hypnotize her. Remember, she claimed she did not see anything. Because she didn't. From her conscience, she didn't see anything. They hypnotized her. In a hypnosis, she said, red motorcycle, first guy with a mustache, second one with a ponytail, one black hair, one blonde hair, plate number, everything. They made a turn, two blocks later, everything she said. Why? Because while she was falling and all that, the soul records everything. But it goes automatically to the subconscious. You don't, you're not even aware. If I ask you now, can you tell me what's on the sidewalk over here outside of the synagogue? So what do you know, man? Who looks at the sidewalk now? We walked out of the car into the shul. If I hypnotize you now, you're going to tell me every little thing on the sidewalk. Because when you walked here, you saw it, but you don't pay attention to it. Oh yeah, there's a burned cigarette, there is a nickel on the floor, there is a piece of glass, there is this, there is a rug, everything. The grass is like this, everything you will know. I'm talking to you trillions of things. Your soul records in the average day, trillions. Every ankle in the wall, everything, everything that moves, the light just went off right now, Avram jumping to save the situation. In 10 years from now, I will ask you, you remember 10 years ago you came to my lecture? Do you remember? Where? In Queens. Who, who remember? I went to different lectures. No, no, that specific one that while I was talking about hypnosis, the light went off and there's a guy who jumped into the small room. Ah, come on, Rabbi, I don't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday. Let me hypnotize you, you will know everything. Everything you can write on a piece of paper. This is the divine soul. You understand? So coming to say, I know better than God, I know better than God, meaning God says, slaughter the animals and eat them, and I know better than him. Why? I'm more merciful than him on the animals. What is it? <laughs> I told you, you better stay there. I know better than God how to have mercy on the animals. Come on. I once told it, actually twice, to two vegetarian people, that second they stopped being vegetarian. Because they really did it for conscience guilt. They had conscience issue. And after they realized the logic behind it, they realized, hey, come on, if God said to eat, then he knows better than me what's right and what's wrong. Same thing the speakers that come and say... I'm afraid to read parts of the Torah because some people will get scared. When Hashem gave the Torah, He knew all the generations? Yes. He knew all the, he knew all the people that would live in the world? Yes. Did He know that there will be liberal, lefty people that are afraid and they want everything to be sugar-coated and politically correct? Yes. And He still wrote it in the Torah. Why? It means that he did not think like you, that they will get scared. And if they get scared, that means it did not bother him too much. He still put it in the Torah. Because remember one thing, Hashem will never do something that will save the life of Reuven, while at the same time it kills the life of Shimon. En dochim nefesh mipne nefesh, the Gemara say. You don't kill one person to save the other one. You don't do such thing. And the Holocaust, 
There was a very big rabbi posek in a, in, a, in a camp. Rav Ashri, famous. He has a book about his ruling in the Holocaust. One person came to him and said to him, Rabbi, my son is in a list of a hundred people that tomorrow are going for execution. I have a way of saving him. I hid money in a forest under the ground by a specific tree. Lots of cash. I can bribe the German guard, offer him the money to take my son out of the list. But the problem is that I know he's going to have to put a different Jew inside the in the list. Am I allowed to do it? To save my son, knowing I'm killing another person instead. Do you know what was the answer of Rabbi Ashri? Why did you have to ask me such a question? And the person told him, don't answer, Rabbi. I already got my answer. Don't answer. And he let his son go to death. Why? Why should I save him and let somebody else die? If he was in a list from first place, it's in the end of Hashem. If he wants to save him, he'll save him. If there was a way to bribe the guard and save him, without putting someone else in the list, because that's all the hundred people in the camp, there's nobody else to put, then obviously you have to give him the money and save your son. But if you know he put someone else, that's already become a very big question. If the goyim come to the town and tell you, give us one Jew that we will kill, and you all leave. If you don't sacrifice one and throw him out of the gate for us to kill, we will kill all of you. 10,000 Jews in a village surrounded by a wall. In the old days, all neighborhoods were surrounded by walls. We call it ghettos. So they want one, open the gate, throw one Jew out, we'll kill him. If not, we'll kill all of you. You're allowed to give him one Jew? Not allowed. Why? But they'll kill all of us. It's not in our hand already. That's in Hashem's problem. Unless they say a specific name. We are here to look for Plony Ben Plony. Why? He owes money to the king. The king wants him. Whatever. That's already, they're going to find him anyway. With or without us. They're not going to let him go. That's a different story. So we ask him, go before they kill all of us. But if they just say, give us one, we cannot give them one. Somebody volunteer, that's a different story. He wants to save everyone. In the Israeli army, there was a very big hero. His name was Roy Klein. A few years ago, one Arab, Hamas, threw a, 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 a grenade. grenade. He threw a grenade and a bunch of Israeli soldiers right by their legs. There was about three seconds until they will explode and kill all of them. He was their commander, Roy Klein. He was a religious guy. He ran and jumped with his stomach on the grenade. It exploded exploded him to million pieces and the life of all his soldiers got saved. What kind of heroes we have? Someone who's willing to... He could have run. 
and let his soldiers die. Not only he did not run, he ran to the grenades and jumped on it, and by that he saved their life. That's a very big hero. How many people would have the guts to jump on a grenade? Horrible. More, usually people will care about their own life, fall on the floor and hope that they will not kill them. But we have, Baruch Hashem, many heroes. Mamash, we're almost done. So, so remember, the main message in this lecture, when it comes to spirituality and education of the children, there is no permission whatsoever to compromise even by 1%. Even if they come and they say to you, allow us Mr. Henry, the French teacher that will teach French history. And we will allow you to learn two more hours Torah every day and we will sponsor it. Or we will give you permit to double the room of the yeshiva. Right now you have hardly 300 kids. You will have room for 600. You ask for that permit, but in one condition, allow us to teach about the Greeks or about Napoleon. You know, I want to I tell you something. Napoleon was good for the Jews or was bad for the Jews? Huh? What do you think? I'm going to tell you something that will shock you and we'll finish right here. How many people from the Jewish nation are secular today? Close to 80%? Every one of them is Napoleon's fault. Because of him, 12 million Jews are not religious. Now I want to know which one of you is clever enough to connect the dots. What Napoleon has to do with all the secular Jews today in the world? No. Louder. Every leader say your citizenship and your nationality is first, then your religion. We can care less about what they say. Like they say, I am American and then I'm a Jew. You ask a Hasid, what are you? I'm a Jew. And if you want, I'm also American, but I'm a Jew. On that, there is no argument. If I'm American or Russian or Yiddish or whatever, we can argue about this. But I am a Jew. You ask me, what are you? I say, I'm Jewish. No, I didn't ask you about your religion. I ask you about your nationality. Nationality of a Jew is always, I'm Jewish. No matter what country you live. Napoleon is good for economy, Napoleon admired the Jews, Napoleon gave the Jews permission to renew the Sanhedrin, Napoleon saw Jews mourning and Tisha Be'av on the floor and he said, what are they crying for? They're crying for their shul that was destroyed. When was that? 1800 years ago. And now they remember to cry, no sir, they cry every year. A nation that warned their past have a future. That's not the reasons why Napoleon was bad for the Jews. 
There's a whole complete different reasons, yes. No. Napoleon gave the Jews freedom. Freedom, meaning you can go to universities. You are equal citizens. Until then, they couldn't get into universities, even if they wanted. Right after he went and gave the Jews freedom, who went to university? An Orthodox rabbi, Mendelssohn, Moses Mendelssohn. All his children followed him. They all converted to Christianity and married Christians in one generation. And the Haskalah movement started who ended up with a massive, horrible holocaust that killed a third of our nation. And from the holocaust until today, the situation only got worse, not better. To the point that the poison that the universities put in our forefathers 200 years ago spread to every Jewish institution in the world today, with some exception to the rules. Some uh, ultra-Hasidish cheder that they have nothing secular, nothing. Just Gemara, Mishnah, everything is in Yiddish, they're not connected to the world. You have still some places like this. But the rest of the institutions, secular, modern, I don't know how you call it, they all have the Greek venom inside the system. Who permitted the Jews to go to university? Napoleon. If Napoleon will not try to be so nice to the Jews, maybe until today Jews will not be permitted to go to universities. The reason that the Jews left Hashem and the Torah, number one reason, is secular education. The secular education that they got turned them into goyim themselves, in their ideology and thinking and understanding of life, it's all nothing Jewish. One perfect example that I'm right is the Yemenite Jews. In Yemen there was no universities for the Jews. No Yemenite went to university. Every Yemenite was learning in Cheder, Gemara from the Mori. If Jews went to the Goim, the Goim will send them back with shame. Get out of here, you idiot. Go back to your mori. If two Jews wanted to sue each other in a secular court, they would not give them permission. They would send them back to the mori. You Jews have to go with your own rabbi. You cannot come here. The Yemenites were so primitive and disconnected from the advanced world, and that's what saved all of their souls, that one Yemenite Jew ever in the history of Yemen was not Mechalel Shabbat, until today, 2,600 years. Millions of Yemenites lived in Yemen over the years. Now one of them was secular, ever, until today. Why? No advanced Goish education. Every other country that Jews went to universities, they destroyed their souls and their friends that did not go to university also got affected by them. To the point that so many American speakers today are teaching university Torah, not Hashem's Torah. And they destroyed more people with their Torah studies. 
I have a whole list of them, unfortunately. I wish I didn't. I have to warn people. That's what's going on today. Today a political speaker becomes already a man de amar. Who, who are you following? Ben Shapiro. What does he have to do with religion? It's very good when it comes to politics. At least he's right, he's not a moron that is a communist, socialist, anti, uh, uh, you know. Okay, at least he understands politics. But what is his connection to Torah? What does he know about Torah? Can he understand one sugiah in a Gemara? Do he understand to teach one parak in Shulchan Aruch? Does he know Ashkafa? Did he ever read as a good Ashkafa? He doesn't even believe in the afterlife. I saw a short interview by him. Doesn't believe in the existence of the soul. Every four years old kid knows about the soul. As soon as you wake up in the morning, first sentence of the day, thank you for giving me back my soul for, for another day of life. He has a yamaka on his head and denies that there is a soul. Denies there is afterlife. Denies heaven. Huh? Doesn't believe in? Resurrection of the dead, obviously. So the Torah say, every Jew that denies one of the 13 principles of Judaism is an infidel, an, an heretic, kofer. The Arabs learned the word from us, they call it kufar. They don't believe in God, you are a kufar. In Hebrew, that's the original word, kofer. Kofer means a denier, infidel in English or heretic. What does it mean? If we say it's one of the 13 principles I don't believe in, you cannot count him in a minyan. Did you know that? But it's Shomer Shabbat. He puts filin. He comes three times a day to shul. He gives millions of dollars to donations. He has a very long beard. And he looks like a very, very orthodox person. He even has a black hat. But he says, I don't believe the Mashiach would come. That's it. Or oh, I don't believe the dead will come from the grave. Or oh, I don't believe God punish. You know how many Orthodox people say that every day? You really believe God punish? You really believe that God can give, can give somebody punishments? The God I am in touch with is not your God. My God does not punish. I wonder... Where did you hear and learn about God? From the same Torah I learned, right? In my Torah, it's written in half of the Torah that there are many hundreds of different punishments to the Jewish nation. After the golden calf, after the, the, they touched the Achan took from the, from, the, from the gold of the Goim, there was a, a big problem. In the exodus of Egypt, 80% of the Jewish nation got killed because they did not have faith in Hashem. I'll give you a thousand examples. So in your Torah... For whatever reason, it does not mention the punishments that my Torah mentioned. To the best of my knowledge, there's only one version of Torah in the whole world, which proves Judaism is the only ultimate truth. How many Korans you have? Hundreds of different versions. How many New Testaments you have? More than 200,000 different texts. How many Torahs you have? Baruch Hashem, one all over the world. Hasidish Torah, Litvish Torah, Yemenai Torah, Sfaradi Torah, Moroccan Torah, Reform Torah, Conservative Torah, Breslev Torah, Chabad Torah, 
somehow all the same. The same Moshe, same Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov, same Exodus of Egypt, same soul, same reward and punishment, same everything. For some reason in their Torah, those parts maybe got erased, I don't know. We have to go and check. Because when they speak, half of the Torah doesn't exist in their speeches. Because they know better than Hashem what's right and wrong. You understand? So next time when someone sells you this baloney, don't let them fool you. Don't let them manipulate you. Stay and stand for the truth of the Torah. Tell them, excuse me. In the Torah it says nine times to love God and 18 times to fear Him. Please don't put a ban on the Torah. 18 times to fear God. Fear the punishment and fear His high holiness. It's called Irata Romemut and Irata Onesh. Some of the 18 times he talks about Irata Romemut, some about Irata Onesh. The Rambam talks about it, reward and punishment. Rambam say, don't worship God, meaning follow his mitzvot, like the women and children. By women and children, main thing is reward and punishment. You have to be above this ladder. Children. I want you to daven. Oh no, Dad, I want to play outside. I'll get you a great ice cream. Right away. Okay, I'll daven. You daven for the bicycle, for the ice cream. That's a child. Women, same thing. So you, you ask her, I want you to be more modest. No, no, I'm, don't tell me how to dress. I hate it. This. Don't worry, I'll buy you a brand new SUV. Really? You'll do that? Yes, in one deal. You're going to dress modest? I'll get you the any SUV you want. We make a deal, three months. Wear long skirts, nothing attached, nothing open, nothing clear, everything according to halacha. And I promise you, I'll get it for you. Right away, she's willing to do it. So the Rambam said, don't be like that. Because women and children operate from their heart. That's their nature. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing wrong about it, by the way. Everyone is the way Hashem made him. A woman sees somebody suffer, right away she cries, she gives her everything she has. A man is not like that. He may eat his heart, he may break his heart, but he's not going to take all the money he has and give it to him. That's why it's much easier to fool women. Much easier, because they operate from the heart. You show them someone is sick, is dying, they take off their wedding ring and give it to them. Why? Because they, they're full of emotions. They have mercy. They can't take the pain. When the child did something wrong and the father is about to give him a strict punishment, who runs to get the punishment? Moshe, Moshe! No, no, no! Give me the punishment! Why? She can't see the child being punished. She suffered. You understand? Why? That's the way it is. That's why, by the way, women cannot testify in court, according to the Torah. Why? It's easy to manipulate them and play on their emotions. That's one reason. Second reason is because it's humiliating. You break the modesty and the, and the dignity of a woman. And Hashem cannot take such a shame that you take a married woman, or even a single one, and you humiliate her by a cross investigation in front of people and ask her all kinds of questions before you want to convict the person and then and, and she has to go through this and she begins to cry. You know how it is. She, begin, she begins to cry and it's a big disgrace, you know. 
So Hashem say, you don't take any testimony from women. Not that women are not reliable. Usually they're more reliable than men. From experience, I can tell you. And they're more honest and they have more integrity usually and because their connection to Hashem is more emotional. However, like I said, there are reasons for everything. A woman's job in the world is not to be a pilot uh, in a F-16 or a commander of a tank or to be a sniper or to be a commander soldier. Do not redesign women. Do not redesign their DNA. Don't turn the women into aggressive men. It will destroy their life later on. Do not make the women make by pushing them into professional careers. Almost all the women went into becoming big shot lawyers and big shot doctors. They did not have time for their own children. Either they never got married or they never had time to have children and they froze eggs and all kinds of things like that. Or even if they got married and have children, many of them got divorced. And if they did not get divorced and they're still married and they still have children, who raised their children? Their nanny. Their children did not see them because they left early in the morning and came back 6, 7 p.m., sometimes 9 p.m. at home, and it was going on for decades. And the children have no feelings for those mothers. I get their complaints. My children don't look at me. They don't look at me. They don't care to call me once a year to ask how I'm doing. Of course, you raised them. You were a career woman. You, they don't feel any connection to you. Especially here in America, when the habit of society is to be very ungrateful. Children don't have gratefulness to their parents. Only those who were raised strictly with Torah, because they're afraid of Hashem, they force themselves to go and take care of their parents. Back in time, it was a natural thing even by secular people. Sixty years ago, a secular woman will never be able to function unless her parents are doing well. She would go sleep there, take care of them, go shopping for them. Today, they, doing, they block, the parents call, they press end. That's, that's the children of today. How many parents are here in America try to locate their kids, teenagers, at night, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., boys and girls, and they keep getting... And, 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 decline, 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 hundred times a night. They don't care. They take their car, yes. They use their credit card, yes. They live in a mansion, yes. The nanny makes their laundry and iron their clothes, yes. They only take. You ask them to take the garbage out. Let the cleaning lady take. Ask one of their girls if they know how to make one omelette. Forget about a real dish. Just to break an egg into a pot. Never once in their life they did it. They refused to do it. Then they have to get married and you ask them to be successful in marriage life. Who are you fooling? Come to, to see Hasidish girls, 11 years old, 12 years old. Go. And in any Hasidish neighborhood. They raised them from a very young age. Babysitter, changing diapers, cleaning, taking garbage out, baking chalas, making kugel. 11 years old, we had Hasidish neighbors. I couldn't believe. The, the husband and wife had a, a restaurant in Monsi, takeout for Shabbos. They work very hard in a restaurant. Who ran the house? 
11 years old girl. She takes care of the babies, changing their diapers, baking challahs, making kugels, 11 years old. Not 17, 18. Take the American prima donnas with the long glued nails and the high heels all day in the mall. Come, come run the house for one day. Oh my God, I commit suicide. I commit suicide all day with their gum like this, sitting in the mall all day. You have a good shidduch for my daughter, rabbis? You don't know if to laugh or to cry. You don't know. Oh, there's a new option now. We can go to Dubai for vacation. Five Dad? Dubai. $5,000, 10 days in Dubai. Not include the airfare. Come on, you owe me, Dad. America. Now there's Morocco also. Combination. One week in Dubai, one week in Morocco. Maybe you go one week in Sudan and stay there. <laughs> Sudan. Ay, ay, ay. Very painful. But what can we do? Tomorrow, Bezrat Hashem, 8 o'clock in Brooklyn, Wednesday, also lecture in Mill Basin. We send out the flyer. I want every one of you that still is not connection, connected to my YouTube channel, please subscribe. Dubai, no vaccination. So, join the app, the new app that we have, rabbiyosemizrahi.org, on the App Store and in the Google Store. And please, share it with others. Convince other people to join the lecture. It makes a lot of ballet tshuva. Mamash. One person sent me now a, a message, asked me a question about the rabbi in Israel, if he's kosher. <laughs> the best rabbi in the world, he asked me if he's kosher. I told him, not only kosher, is the Nur Avovadia Yosef. Do you understand his Hebrew? Say yes. By the way, my brother became religious from your lectures. One month he started to listen, he's fully religious. That can happen to many thousands every month. If you, each one of you, will wake up from his dreaming and from his sleeping and start being more active, giving out CDs, buy CDs, give them out, buy USBs, give them out, buy books. We made a deal, 50 books of mine in Russian, Spanish, English, Hebrew, 50 books, 50% off. Instead of $20 a book, $10 a book. Buy them. $500 from your master money, you have 50 books that each family that will get it will become completely different. It will make a revolution in the house. A lot of Russian people got the book. They got the shock of the... Some people in Moscow already becoming religious from the books. You have it in Russian, you have it in Spanish, you have it in English, and you have it in Hebrew. What else do you want? Wake up, people. Please also support, give more donation. Now more than ever before when the situation in the world is unclear, where are we heading? What will save us in the end will be tzedakah, remember, even wicked people. As only one thing can save wicked people, it's tzedakah, charity. Nothing else, because they're not fully Shomer Shabbat, they're not strictly kosher, they're not fully madas, their ashkafa is full of uh, holes and problems. What will be able to save them? There's one insurance policy. Charity to save souls. Charity to save souls. The more you give, 
the more protection you and your family has. Very simple. You're not doing anyone a favor. Some people think they're doing me maybe a favor. Huh? You don't have money, you convince people that you know that have money to give. When they give, it counts like you gave more than them. I explained that many times, so you can't go wrong. And you gotta wake up, Rabotai. Baruch Adonai Lolam, Amen, Amen. Rabbi Hananiah Ben Akashia Omer, Ratsa Kadosh Bachul Ezakot et Israel.